You folks see that flashing sign up there? Now that sign says, applesauce. No, no, I'm, I'm kidding. It says, applause. All right. Now, remember, we're on in 10 seconds, so get ready to have a good time. All right, here we go. Hello, everybody, and welcome to the Directors Club Podcast. I am Jim Laskowski. I'm Patrick Rapol. Correct. And we are very I usually excited. get that right. I'm very proud of myself. <laughs> I was just confirming our identities for the okay. audience. Case, we, we don't want to play case, tricks on you. I know. You find people. No, we don't want to play tricks on people. No. Um, we're very happy and excited to have a wonderful guest with us today. Correct. Megan Lamb. <laughs> who uh, is an author and musician amongst many other talents. Editor, uh, co-creator of Red Light Bulbs Literary Magazine. Yes. What's the website for that, Megan? HTTP <laughs> colon backslash backslash redlightbulbs.com. Oh, that's a good uh, one. Oh, dot, dot net, dot net. Oh, Sorry. I was, I was getting a little carried really away. Net? Yeah, it's really dot net. It's oh, so good. Yeah. Everybody should nets. check that out. There's some very interesting work up on that site. Yes. I'm going to pick up a little. It'll be a dot biz. It'll be <laughs> exciting. Um, I'll refrain from another biz marquee joke again. Okay. Did we already do a dot biz biz marquee joke? Yeah, we did. Oh, my God. I think that was all that we needed. Yeah. <laughs> 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 I'm really excited about this episode, Jim. Yeah, because we're going to be talking about... Uh, David Cronenberg. Steven Spielberg. David. No, no, no. Peter Burke. David Cronenberg. David Cronenberg. Let's not right. bury the lead this time. <laughs> yeah. We normally, we normally save, announce. I mean, they already know. Yeah. There's he, like no way you can listen to this episode and not know. Like, unless like you're working somewhere and your boss is playing this over the loudspeaker. <laughs> in which case, where do you work? Yeah. That sounds great. I know. It's totally weird. Hi. Hey, you. I see you. That's, that's if they've downloaded it, if they've looked at the website, they know what's going on. They know what's up. And uh, we'll be talking about another one of my favorite directors, David Cronenberg. Yes. So it's going to be fun, mm-hmm. hopefully. Um, I'm, it's also going to be fun. I, I have something special to announce. Oh, what is it, Patrick? Congratulations ahead of time. What is it? Um, I, did I, I, I can't <laughs> live up to that. Okay. I, uh, no, I'm I wanted... just overly excited. I cracked open the champagne and everything. Yeah, yeah. All over yourself. Of course. <laughs> uh, <laughs> uh, as usual. No, no, no. Uh, something I wanted, I wanted, I'm starting this year uh, for the month of July. Um, in honor of fasting, sort of the uh, summer movie season, um, which I don't like at all, because um, I just all there's really never any good movies. But it likes you so much. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's why I had to unfriend it on Facebook because it kept <laughs> kept liking every single status I did, like yeah. whether or not it was anything. Mm-hmm. Yeah, it was annoying. So anyway. But uh, I want to announce the uh, first annual Directors Club Summer Shittacular, um, in which uh, I am pledging to watch nothing other than the movies that uh, we're watching for the podcast. Uh, I'm, I'm pledging to watch nothing but bad movies uh, for the entire month of July. He has his hand over his heart, and he's mm-hmm. pledging to the flag of shitty movies right now. Yeah. And my other hand's on a Bible. 
Yep. The other hand is in your man badge. You have three, you have three I have hands. something else, too. I have something exciting <laughs> three hands. I, I grew another arm recently. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> no, but uh, so um, the, the basically the rules I've set up um, is all the movies, they must either be bad, look bad, or seem like the kind of movie I'd hate. Mm-hmm. Uh, I, I'm trying to do a diverse array of bad movies from, you know, sort of no-budget horror movies to um, big blockbuster epics to uh, Transformers. Uh, and I, I, at least half of the movies I must have never seen before. Does this mean you're going to watch a John Hughes movie and maybe a Wilco documentary like you promised? That's right. I do need to watch a John Hughes movie. Did John Hughes direct Some Kind of Wonderful, though? That's right. No, yes, he didn't. He, no, he, no, he didn't. He didn't? He wrote it. Oh. He wrote Howard it somebody. Pink. Yeah. Howard, because he, he did a lot of crypt episodes. Howard That's the how Duck. Howard the Duck directed <clears throat> Some Kind of Wonderful. It is starring Leia Thompson. <laughs> um, oh, yeah. Wow, wow. Yeah. But, that, was, uh, that, that joke so, um, worked well. So, Jim, we, we had a little discussion, but I don't think we decided. Are you going to be joining me in this uh, I, month of pain? I will. Yeah, um, yeah I, I think I can do this. It's it's sort of a throwback to the good old days of um, when I was in in high school and me and my friend Matt Denny would just go and watch whatever we could find, whatever bad mm-hmm. movies we could uncover. And nowadays, it's certainly a lot more convenient with things like Netflix Instant yeah. and you know, I tons mean, of bad movies. I know, there, mostly. Mm-hmm. And like, I I look at the list and I kind of go, you know what? I want to watch this, but I got to watch something good also, for the podcast. Or also just theaters. Why would these I waste days, my time? A lot more bad movies. What? <laughs> also, just theaters these days. A lot more bad movies. Yeah, that's probably true. It's yeah. probably true. So uh, that's exciting. If you want, if you if you folks at home or at, at work um, want to <laughs> <wanna> play along, <laughs> or you're in a car, yeah, you know, in your car, you you folks uh, who put this on to. Go to sleep too to help you quit smoking accidentally. You've hit you're the out, wrong podcast. You're out um, there walking the cow. All of you people, if you want to play along, uh, feel free to send us emails, uh, Directors Club uh, Podcast at gmail.com. Mm-hmm. And, uh, you know, we'd love to hear from you. Yeah, this this will be a fun little treat. Yes. Or it's going to be just extremely painful and not fun yeah. at all. Are we going to have like a bonus? We should have a bonus episode at the end of the month where we sort of just talk about everything we watched. Because. Well, I'm going to be. I'm. I mean, I'm going to be. Uh, I keep updating the uh, the blog at uh, directorsclubpodcast.com. Yeah, I will as well. Um, with what I'm watching, and I'm going to, you know, since I'm watching nothing but bad movies, it's going to be into in the what I watch this week segment. Yeah, this is something I can definitely do until school starts up again. So. I'm looking forward to it as well. There's always things on Netflix Instant, like mm-hmm. Rabid Grannies or something that Titanic I'm like two, really excited to watch. Titanic 2. Yes, exactly. It's about a, <laughs> it's about a luxury ocean liner called the Titanic 2. <laughs> no. Yeah, yes. The, the guy who did the sci-fi oh channel God. or something does yeah, that. Yeah, and uh, it's about a tsunami that pushes an iceberg in its way. Still an iceberg. How yeah. great does that sound? I... You better not be making no, this it's up. No, it's totally it's true. It's on Netflix Instant. Yeah. Oh Titanic 2. Yeah. Uh, you know what we're doing when we get home. <laughs> That's right. <laughs> Megan's husband, Russ, is also uh, sitting in. He's not not part of the episode. But oh, he's... yeah, I'm schizophrenic. I'm uh. schizophrenic. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. Remember Russ from the Todd Haynes episode. Anyway, before we get into what we watched this week, we I, do have... I do want to talk briefly... Talk about our top five movies of 2011 oh, so right. far as well. Um, it, this has sort of been coming up because now we're in we're at the halfway point of the year, mm-hmm. and a lot of uh, critics and other podcasts mm-hmm. have been sharing what movies they've enjoyed so far this year. So we figured we'd do that for you as well. It's kind of slim pickings out there right now, but also, there's a few things. A lot you of the other uh, podcasts <laughs> and stuff. What they do is they watch a lot of movies. Yeah, <laughs> in theaters. I mean, we're watching a lot of movies, but from like you know directors that we're I, covering. Uh, I had seven movies to choose from. 
yeah. uh, from, that I've seen from 2011. And none of them were seven. Yeah. Um, one of them uh, was the uh, TV movie uh, finale of Sit Seventh Heaven. Oh. It was so nice to see Scott Wolf. Scott Wolf is party of five, isn't he? Yeah. Who's the Scott Wolf? Well, we are doing a top five, so that might work. Oh, my God. If you want to include some Scott Wolf in there. People at work right now must hate their boss. Um, Let's go ahead. (laughs) Go ahead and read me your top five, Jim. I will. Um, At number five is a movie called Win Win, directed by um, Thomas McCarthy, I want to say his name is, I think. Or it's Todd McCarthy. I think it's Thomas McCarthy. Um, he did The Station Agent and The Visitor. Station Agent I liked, The Visitor I loved. Win-Win is probably my favorite movie of his so far. It's It's got Paul Giamatti and um, um, Amy Ryan is in this as well. It's, it's a really good sort of cynical uh, Alexander Payne-esque indie movie that's kind of a little bit like Cedar Rapids, only a little bit darker, so... I recommend Win Win. Paul Giamatti's great, pretty uh-huh. much all every in every performance. Right. So it's my kind of movie, but you know, yeah. Number four is Hannah, which uh, was a very pleasant surprise because the trailers uh, again didn't really sell me on this one. Although I I was kind of looking forward to the next Joe Wright movie because I really liked some uh, the cinematography and atonement. Right. And we talked about Hannah on yeah, the podcast we did. before. So, so. It's, a, it's an excellent film and it's coming out on DVD soon, I believe. Uh, number three is uh, Bridesmaids. Probably the funniest movie. No, definitely the funniest movie of the year so far. And now the uh, top grossing Judd Apatow. Well, way to go. Greatest movie of all time. That's great. It just I'm, took I'm, over, uh, surpassed uh, Knocked Up. I'm very happy for Kristen Wiig. She wrote a great script. Yeah. Uh, number two is Midnight in Paris, which I just saw, and I absolutely loved it. Mm-hmm. It's one of my newer favorite Woody Allen movies of the past few years or so. Um, it's, you know, like you said, it's got some villain Ted kind of humor to it, which doesn't bother me at all. Um, I bought into, like, the love story and everything. and Yeah, yeah I don't know. I, I mean, it, it, I if you're, so like I said, if you're romanticizing a city and you have time travel... Um, amongst other things. I don't know. It's just, it's kind of a movie that... You're an easy just, mark. It warmed up to is me. Is there a single, wait, is there a single time travel movie you don't like? Mm, I don't know. I'll have to look that up. Like, I'm sure I'll, if I just, like, find a list of all the time travel movies, I'm sure I'll find something. Oh. Um, I just like... Sound of Thunder or something? There's a movie I never about, saw that. It's like they go back in time and they accidentally change something. It's like one of the worst movies I've ever seen in my really? life. Really? Maybe like I'll a, watch it in July. Yeah, that's probably hmm. a good idea. Yeah, and number one is Terrence Malick's The Tree of Life, which is a very hard movie for me to talk about. And <laughs> one of these episodes we will talk about it. Maybe mm-hmm. I'll wait till Patrick sees it. But um, I don't know if I'm even going to see it because it's I know. not really opening wider and I don't have the money to go out to Chicago and see it. I understand. Hopefully it will open wider, but if not... Um, expect, you know, we'll have a Terrence Malick episode at some point, if not this year, then soon. Do you think, uh, do you think, like, the theater people giggle when David Cronenberg movies open wider? Ooh. <laughs> okay. It's, you know, it's, okay. Anyway. That was good, though. Nah, all right. Uh, uh, I only saw seven movies this year. Um, three of them were bad. So, uh, my number <laughs> five is Scream 4, which was the lesser of evils compared to Paul which had nothing memorable about it, and uh, um, Your Highness, which was just horrible. Oh, God. Scream 4 was kind of fun. I mean, I like those movies, so. Yeah, you like them a little bit more than me, but yeah. that's fine. Um, and, and it had a really cool ending, um, so that was neat. Yeah. Uh, after that, uh, Midnight in Paris, um, 
which is again we talked about that. It's a very enjoyable movie. We talked it about is. this episode. Uh, Thirteen Assassins, the uh, Takashi Miike movie, which I believe we talked about on the Walter Hill episode. Mm-hmm. That'd be my number six. Oh yeah, yeah. Um, number two would be Hannah, which you just mentioned, and then number one would be Bridesmaids, which you just mentioned. Yeah, not not bad. Yeah, it's gonna take something really good to knock Bridesmaids out for me. Bridesmaids, mm-hmm. I saw I saw it a second time with uh, Carly, and it's it get even better the second time. It's really fucking funny. Yeah, that's cool. Yep. Anything that All stands right. out for you so far this year, Megan? I know you've only seen a couple of things, but what was Nomeo and Juliet? I believe. <laughs> oh, no, 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 no. <laughs> you saw Submarine. We saw yeah. Submarine. We saw something else though too that I was like really excited about. What? Hmm. I I can't I remember it. Oh, it's okay. Nomeo and Juliet. <laughs> <laughs> anyway, that's pretty much our top five. I have. You know, like I, I really like Submarine a lot. We'll we'll talk about that a little bit more, and uh, I really liked Rango and Cedar Rapids as well. Mm-hmm. So I'm sure there's others. Oh wait, wait, wait! I remembered what it was. Yeah. It was Visions. Oh okay. What's that? Because yeah, I've never well, even heard of that movie I don't know until what now. That is. is it a documentary or? Why can't I remember the name of the director? It was hmm. German film. It was a German director um, who has directed a lot of other things, but um, it's about a nun who start seeing visions but it's questionable like whether or not she believes them or whether she's aware of her ulterior motives in having Hmm. these visions and she basically like uses these visions to get her way it's like the only like the only agency she has as a woman and a nun is to pretend she's seeing things and people start to believe her visions and um, some people don't and it's a source of conflict but ultimately like that's really interesting to me because there's a movie coming out this year that I'm really excited about with Michael Shannon, and he's having some very unusual visions, sort of apocalyptic visions. Yes, that movie's called Cataracts. No, it's called Take Shelter, and he finds out that his mother was schizophrenic and uh, sort of begins to question his sanity, and it's all about, well, is this apocalypse really happening, or is he schizophrenic, and... It's kind of up my alley, and I'm a huge Michael Shannon fan, but it's like just just the idea of somebody having these sort of hallucina- hallucinatory uh, visions. Hallucinations. Yeah. That's the word. Yeah. yeah. Hallucinatory. Oh, oh, I believe the word you're looking for is uh, Nomeo and Juliet. Delusions. Um, <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So cool. uh, we, do have, we do have a plethora of emails. I love using that word, plethora. Mm-hmm. Um so why don't we get to a few of those? And it was very nice of you to print them out on pleather, too. <laughs> pleather? I don't like animal products of any kind. <laughs> um, yeah, uh, some of them are about are more for next week's episode. Um, oh, yeah, because we'll be discussing Tim Burton in a couple weeks. Yeah. Um, uh, number one, uh, Mac Hansen asked if we'd be covering any documentary director, and uh, I'm very happy to announce that we are. Oh, yeah. Um, no, it's not going to be Michael Moore or Morgan Spurlock. Yeah, he expressed uh, disdain for both of them. Yeah, and uh, later in the year we'll probably touch on, although he's not, pro- you know, uh, just a documentary filmmaker. But we'll be talking about Werner Herzog later in the year as well, and he's made mm-hmm. some great documentaries. But our first um, d- uh, documentary director we'll be discussing is Mr. Errol Morris. Yeah, and he's quite a visionary. He makes very um, almost like if. Stanley Kubrick made documentaries because they're sort of cold and he's really um, uh, specific with how he frames shots and 
usually everybody is behind a white background or something and like he has a lot of Phil Glass music. They're very cinematic cinematic versions of documentaries as opposed to being like, you know, a bunch of talking heads and research based. It's mostly just people recollecting really interesting things and um Errol Morris is a great director. I highly recommend Gates of Heaven. And a really exciting um announcement regarding that particular episode, Mr. Jay Cheel of Film Junk, which is my favorite podcast. Who is uh, uh has, who has become an accomplished documentary yes. documentarian of his own with right. uh, Beauty Day. Yes, he's uh gotten distribution for it in Canada. And uh, he's an excellent filmmaker, and I'm look, really looking forward to having him on our show for the Errol Morris episode. And that'll probably be happening October 1st. So look forward to that. Yeah. Thanks, Mac, for the email. Yeah. <clears throat> um, uh, and then uh, Anne uh, suggested that we cover a director whose movies are generally considered universally bad to hmm. as sort of a way of explaining what, what doesn't work. Because um, we might have different interpretations of what's considered bad filmmaking. Yeah. Um, but my one problem with that episode would be, like, the really bad directors, what makes them bad is just really basic stuff, like, just not knowing how to tell a story. Mm-hmm. And just, and I, I, I feel like that episode might not, might not be so interesting because it would just turn into, like, filmmaking 101 of how, yeah. how to tell a story with images and, like,. I mean, I try to find at least one redeeming quality in almost everything I watch. I mm-hmm. try to find something like, well, at least he does this thing good, or this thing stands out. Yeah. You know, I mean, I would try to look at it, obviously, with a critical eye, but it's still say, you know what, there's something here, right? I mean, if we turn, <laughs> if we decided to sort of take a take take a take an episode off and just sort of do like a film sack thing where we cover two Uwe Ball movies, I wouldn't be opposed to that. No, that'd be fun. Um, it wouldn't be something we do regularly at yeah, all, yeah, but yeah. once in a while it might be kind of an interesting approach. And then, and then my other response—I mean, we would are be, watching nothing but bad movies this yeah, month. That's true. So my other my other response to that question would be: We already did Rob Zombie. Yes. Yeah. So, <laughs> um, and that's about that's about <laughs> as, as far as yeah, emails. There's more emails. Um, we got a lot of actually messages um, about from people who really loved the last episode of, on Peter Weir. Mm-hmm. Um, I'm happy to announce that Brendan. Uh, um, from that episode, we'll be returning um, to discuss um, David Mamet with us. Yeah, greatly looking forward to that. Yeah, definitely. Um, so thanks for all the kind words there. Yeah, thank you very much. We we got a good amount of emails, and keep them coming, folks. Yeah. Thank you. Anyway, so let's uh, get into what we watched this week. Cool. What we Laser mission or some like it high Comical or simply override It's time to talk about what we watched So, Patrick, yes. why don't you go first this week and tell us what yeah. we watched Well, and then there was, there's what actually one watched. Yeah, yeah <laughs> There's actually uh, one last email that I luckily got to read before Um before last night, which was from Josh Fort, who read about, uh, who read my uh, July uh, summer movie spectacular um, post on the blog, and recommended that I uh, go on InstantWatcher.com and look through their worst category. Oh, which I did. Yeah, and uh, I found the first movie that I watched, uh, which was um, The Crow: Wicked Prayer, which is the, if you believe it or not, fourth Crow movie. Um, yes, that none of them are connected, and they all have the exact. I mean, I haven't actually. This is, I have to be honest, this is actually the only Crow movie I've seen. 
Oh, yeah. never I never seen saw the, the original. First, oh. I never saw the first one because really? I, sort of, I associate it with douchebags. Understandably. And it's like, it's like something about it. a brooding rock star who's like who's trying to avenge his girl. Like, it just seemed like the worst kind of image God, comics. when that movie came out, though. Yeah, no, no totally. It was, it was... Yeah, but that's... that's adored. Again, that's why my, my, my primary cultural association with it is sort of the way that after Dark Knight came out, everyone did Joker costumes for Halloween yeah. parties. After that came out, everyone did Crow costumes. Oh, yeah. Oh, yeah, it was, it was huge with the industrial and goth kids. Speaking of, <laughs> speaking, speaking of amateur uh, uh, Crow costumes, that is exactly uh, what it looks like in this movie. Um, it's kind of fascinatingly... Bad, but not fascinating enough that I could ever recommend it as a so bad it's good movie. Yeah, um, I hope to come across those. Mostly, <laughs> what I mean besides the sort of okay, so the crow is about a guy is about all the movies based on the plot synopsis I read are about a guy watches his girlfriend get killed and then he gets killed right. and then he avenges um, both of their lives um, on the gang that takes their lives using the helps of a supernatural crow. Um. And, uh, like, like just sort of an example of how bad the filmmaking is. Um, in the scene where sh- his girlfriend gets killed, there's not a single reaction shot from him. Yeah. Which is, like, sort of the whole basis of the movie, is that he went through this traumatic event watching his girlfriend die. Not a single, like, not even a single just shot of him screaming no or anything. Hmm. Uh, like, there's a lot of stuff like that where it's just like, did they just not get coverage? Like, what's, something, <laughs> something went wrong. Huh. Um but I'd say beyond that, the number one problem with it is they cast Edward Furlong <laughs> as the crow. And this is this was about like eight years after Pecker, but he's and he still looked like fifteen. Yeah, he's supposedly playing an ex-con, but he looks like like fifteen. And he, when he puts on the crow makeup, he looks like a fifteen-year-old going to a costume <laughs> party dressed as the crow. <laughs> And like his voice even still cracks. Oh, like no. remember, oh. remember like Terminator Two, where, where he's like, "My shit, Miles Dyson, she's gonna blow him away." And, like his voice randomly crack. <laughs> like he still does that, but this time he's like, "Quote the Raven, die, motherfucker!" <laughs> like oh. it's the worst shit. God. Luckily, like apparently he was too expensive or something, so he's like only in about fifteen minutes of the movie, hmm. which is another primary flaw. Um, but the star-studded, the cast of this movie is actually pretty star-studded. The main villain is the lead guy from Angel. Uh, oh. Most of the movie focuses okay. on him, sort of, you know, hamming it up. Um, there's also Danny Trejo. Uh, there's the uh, the guy who played Tank from The Matrix, which at this point, not really. <laughs> okay, star-studded, it's a stretch, but uh, it was very distracting. And then uh, the saddest part of the movie is Dennis Hopper. Is in it as a pimp. Oh, of course. Uh, he's in it for five minutes, and all of his dialogue is juggalo speak. Um, literally, he's he's talking about like re- reincarnating Satan or whatever through this unholy marriage. But like, he's just like, we need to get to the main Mac Daddy of all Mac Daddies. We got to get this gangster. You know, it's like, hey, yay, boo, nice hoe. Like, it's it's like literally. And it's and it's Dennis Hopper. It's Dennis Hopper. It hurts so much. Like every time he was on screen, I'm like, please don't, please. Like he's and he's and he's only in there for like five minutes, but it's like still way too much. And it it was really sad. Oh, Tara Reid is also in it. I forgot to mention. Oh, of course. Um, she's great. Uh, she's always great. You know, Tara Reid. What a joy. Um, <laughs> I put up. I actually did put up on the blog on my write up, sort of brief write up of the Crow Wicked Prayer. I put up. A YouTube video that has compiled all of the embarrassing things that uh, Dennis Hopper says 
So you might want to check that out. I mean, if if you just want to weep for mm-hmm. the late Dennis Hopper, it's it's like worse than the that I would kill Brendan Lee like forty more times <laughs> just to make sure this movie didn't happen. Um, so that was kind of shitty. Yeah, it kind of sounds like it. Did Chris Isaac contribute a song? No, no, no wicked um, prayer. Like did he do the parody of his own song? I, I mean, I would say that uh, Robert Rodriguez contributed a song, but that's because it had the same shitty generic like guitar, like mm-hmm. acoustic guitar music that all of his action movies have. Because this movie actually took place in the Southwest. And, oh yeah, the other funny thing about the movie is that it, it's like a race drama, but in it, it's all about how Indians need to stop being racist against white people. <laughs> so, oh, like, wow. you know, Edward Furlong is this guy who, like, in a crowded, I guess, company picnic, it's never really explained, um, this one Indian was, like, raping his girl, like, raping his girlfriend, so he killed him. And, like, there's, like, 40 people around who clearly saw her getting raped. And he's like, and they're like, what, do you fucking hate Indians now? What, you just don't like Native Americans? You fucking killer? And, and, then, and then, like, everyone hates him for the rest of the movie. And he's just like, I'm just misunderstood. I just wish all these Native Americans would stop being so racist. And, like, they're, like, they're literally portrayed as just, like, greedy capitalists who just want casinos. Like, they don't even care anymore. Oh, my God. Oh, wow. <laughs> It's horrible. It's really bad. Well, you'll be happy yeah, to know. Yeah, because they're getting that, rich off yeah. their casinos. Yeah. You'll be happy to know you that know. Um, Bradley Cooper will be starring in the reboot. There's not a reboot of The Crow. Yes, there is. <laughs> Directed by the guy who did 28 Weeks Later. Yeah. In 2013, we here's, have The, the, the Crow Here's reboot. the problem with The Crow reboot. It's the same problem with uh, Get Him to the Greek. Where it's it's under like the basic premise of it is that there are still rock stars who are decadent, but there are no rock stars anymore. Mm. Like if they're going to do a crow remake, it would have to be a rapper because those are the only like rock stars now who like yeah. Like I don't know who they would get to be like a brooding rapper. I guess hmm. I guess like Kanye or maybe Tyler the Creator. Or something. <laughs> <laughs> but uh, no, but that sounds horrible. Yeah. That's anyway, terrible. Um, the other movie I watched is. I, th- I think is bad, but my I probably will get a lot of flack for it. Is Finding Nemo, um, which is I I found is a lot of a lot of people really like that movie, um, especially people who are really into Pixar. Mm-hmm. And I've I've heard that like it's different if you have kids, but I think that just means that the movie isn't good enough at ma- making <laughs> those feelings accessible to people who don't. You know? Yeah. Like it's I I think that just means people with kids are probably easy marks because all the humor in Finding Nemo. <laughs> Is really lame, like I really unfunny. I would agree with that, but and the characters are really boring. <laughs> um, and one I... note, yeah, and and like they're in... and then this might just be me, but like you cannot have an exciting scene when you're underwater. Like having a chase scene <laughs> when you can only go into it. Like like they they run around on the bottom of the ocean floor whenever they do chase scenes as if they can't go up or down. And it's like there's no real weight to anything because right. they get like knocked, but they're in water. Like so, it doesn't really <laughs> feed anything. You gotta I, watch yourself some Shark Week. Sir. Yeah, I mean Albert Brooks does a good job. He's he's sort of fun, and but Ellen it's like DeGeneres is good. Ellen DeGeneres is really annoying in it. Uh, <laughs> um, I didn't think so. Oh god, she's the worst because they like like again. It's she's the comic relief, but it's one joke over and over again. Yeah, and I think Pixar did much better before and after. Um, but, I mean, I guess if you have kids. <laughs> Autistic <laughs> children love that. Oh, well, no, that's, that's why I watched it, because Carly's brother was home. Oh. He got well, mad at me. I tried sense. to put it on the widescreen. He almost broke the Blu-ray trying to knock the DVD oh. out because oh, no. he wanted to watch the full screen. 
that's rough. I mean, but I, I, I like Finding Nemo. Yeah. Because if you, if you made a top five gym biases, mm-hmm. fish would be on it because I love fish. Yeah. You know. Fish are boring. I, I actually really hate fish. Me and, me and Carly were having a discussion about this. Like, I just find them kind of gross and kind of boring. Okay. Like I don't. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I'm not, I'm not attacking your opinions. I'm just saying. I know. Really hate fish. So that that might also. If we go to the to zoo, it. we're going to the dolphin show. I will change your mind. Mm, the I'll... dolphins aren't fish. Well, I know, but I still think. And I'm not going to part of the, the fish part of the sea the life. Dolphins uh, jump upward. Yeah. It's really awesome. Also, yeah, but we can go check out some seals and. I don't know. It's know. just like. It's really boring, even just visually, because everything's just blue. With... I bet you're glad you chose the Museum of Science and Industry over the Shedd Aquarium. Did I choose for... the Science and Museum and Industry? Yeah. When? Well, we had a choice. I don't know if you remember that for my birthday. It was last year, I think. No, I don't we... remember that. Yeah. Okay. We, yeah, we had I a did... choice. Yeah, yeah, yeah. I gave you a choice. Shedd Aquarium or Museum of Science and right. Industry. Right. Well, that's why yeah. I didn't choose the aquarium, because right. it's boring as shit. No, it's not. <laughs> <laughs> okay. What did you watch this week, Jim? I'm sorry. Well, I, I did want to bring up... Nemo. <laughs> I wanted to bring up Submarine, even though we technically saw it two weeks, but two weeks ago. And um, I hate underwater movies. <laughs> <laughs> nice, but you like this submarine movie movies. Would have been better. You if like it Navy were movies. I do. That's true. I do like. I do like Navy movies. Yeah, maybe it would have been better underwater. And uh, you know, obviously, Megan, you can jump in and and discuss your thoughts on the movie as well. I really liked it. It's sort of appeals to my sensibilities in that, you know, it has sort of a Wes Anderson vibe with, along with, like, it reminded me a little bit of Harold and Maude, uh, just the tone of the movie. And it's just about adolescent angst and falling in love for the first time, having, uh, discovering your libido and, you know, uh, feeling just sort of an overall anxiety about who you are and your parents not being able to understand your parents and their actions yeah, it's it's a coming of age movie, but it's done you know by uh, a British comedian whose name escapes me right now, Richard Aode, who um, you might know as Moss from the IT Crowd. And I is that it, how you pronounce it? Aode. I always said no, no, no. I always said the It Crowd. Is it IT Crowd? I think it's the IT Crowd. Yeah. Yeah. Okay. The well, It Crowd. Now I know why it was capitalized. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> I um, just had to scream it. No, but I like that show. I, I like my anglophile friends. <laughs> oh, do you like the it crowd? <laughs> um, but the, yeah, I, I there were, I had a couple of problems with the movie that likes uh, just a couple of things where I was really getting into the love story component, and then it sort of veers off into like this um, evil neighbor subplot because um, the neighbor used to uh, go out with. Uh, his mother, and See, so he tries to sabotage things. I think that that plot could have either been developed more, or I think that the romantic plot could have been developed more, yeah. but I think as it was, they like couldn't decide which was more important and it ended up being kind of meandering and awkward. Right, and that's kind of how I felt, and I wasn't a fan of, of the ending at all. Like, I don't know, it, it seemed like he couldn't settle on how how the story should play out, and then it played out in a way that I didn't feel like was as sincere as the rest of the movie. But overall, I, I just there were so many things I liked about it because it's it's like when you have cool little montages and just the kind of things that Wes Anderson does so well. Although they sort of pay homage to a lot of French New Wave, you know, just so, sort of things like that. You know, that in which you're telling a love story and a coming of age story, and I like both of those themes in movies in general. 
How um, old is the main character? 12, maybe? 12, 13? I or was maybe thinking more like 14. Yeah, around 13. there. Okay. Ish. Yeah. Around I like, 13. I like that. I yeah. Don't, I don't, once they get to be like 16 and it's like coming of age mm-hmm. love stories, I'm like, uh eh. The criticisms <laughs> surrounding this movie have, have sort of been... Uh, just because, like, some of my other film critic friends are getting tired of the preciousness of indie films. Mm-hmm. Things like, uh, you know, the uh, dog with subtitles and beginners and, like, just these little touches where something like Win Win or Cedar Rapids really don't have these touches. It's just about the characters and they tell a story. Um, there are things in Submarine that, you know, sort of veer towards Miranda July territory where... Mm-hmm. But those are things I like. And... Either, you know, you go with it or you don't, and I sort of like those things, even if they're sort of too cutesy. Um, I don't know. It's it's one of those things where maybe there are issues with the movie overall that, you know, people would find a lot more annoying than I would. So I don't know where you'd fall on the, the movie as a as a whole, Patrick, but I think there are things about it you would like. I'm. I, it looked like a movie I might like, but it's not a movie I would go seek out. Right. Yeah, and I, I, think, I think you'll definitely like just... The character that he plays. Mm-hmm. I'm not even sure of the kid's name. <laughs> Question. Yeah. Are there any screen doors in this movie? Mm, yeah, I think there are. It's a mistake. Maybe. Maybe. It's a mistake. Because submarines don't have screen doors. Is that where this is going? Could have let it bre- breathed. Mm. Could have let it breathed. We could have let it breathed. <laughs> we should have let it have a briss. I like that. I like that this is becoming awkward because submarine itself has moments of pure awkwardness. What's your next movie, Jim? Well, I don't know if I. I it's kind of tough. I I want to talk about a TV show, but really quickly, I want to bring up the fact that I rewatched about Schmidt for the second time. Ooh! And I absolutely love this movie even more. And Alexander Payne, like I love all of his movies, but this one's definitely my favorite, only because of how moved I am by the whole movie. Like, I think I cried, like, four times or something this time. I don't know. Maybe it was just, I was, I don't know. Like, I think this that is... movie makes me cry, too, This Jim. This movie, like, I think it's Jack Nicholson's best performance. I mean, it's probably my favorite performance of his because there's not a lot of Jack-isms in this movie at all. It's, you know, he doesn't do his usual shtick. And even in something like The Departed, he's really good in it, but he's basically doing Jack Nicholson riffing. And in this, he's so subdued and, like, you just constantly feel empathy for this character, although, you know, he does some despicable things like most Alexander Payne protagonists tend like, to do. Is this, like, the only movie where Jack Nichols... I mean, obviously before, other than, like, when he was 30 and stuff, but is this, like, the first old Jack Nicholson movie where he really plays his age? Yes. I would think so. I mean, I, you know, he doesn't have, like, a, you know, a, a young... A wife at all yeah. in the movie, and he doesn't have a wife. He's retiring. <laughs> well, she dies. Right. Well, yeah, right. That's yeah. What I mean. He's he, he's retiring, and um, I like I like movies with road trips. I'm I'm I think that's oh, something yeah. I enjoy a, a lot. Probably because I like taking road trips, but I also like watching people take road trips. I think and I, all I the like weird road things trips. they uncover. I like I like road trips too. Yeah. Um, but this is I don't know if we talked about this in the last episode or if we might have talked about it off the air, but. Um, I feel I find that like every like four years or so, or that I, I'm like I can't trust my opinion if I haven't seen a yeah. movie mm-hmm. since then because I just my my taste and everything has completely grown and changed. Right. And this is one of those movies that I loved when I saw it when it first came out in 2002. So I was like, like what 15? Mm-hmm. Yeah, I was like 15. So yeah. I can't, and I haven't seen it since. So and it and it is one of those movies where I look back and I'm like. 
I don't know if I can trust my 15-year-old self to be objective about it. Yeah, so. I, I, I don't know. I mean, I, I feel like when the when uh, Al- it's been, geez, like seven years since Sideways. So Alexander Payne's new movie comes out this year, The Descendants, with George Clooney, and I'm greatly looking forward to it. Oh, it does? Um, yeah, I mean, I don't know if we'll get to talk about Alexander Payne for he a full episode or he, not. But For some reason, I thought he did Smart People. Or did no, he write it or produce it? He just it? produced it, I think. Oh, okay. Yeah. He did write an amazing segment for Paris, Paris Je T'aime, that uh, uh, anthology movie with that had more misses than hits in terms of like the little vignettes. I mean, the Coen brothers did a story. A lot of different directors contributed to Paris Je T'aime, which was pretty good. Um, but Alexander Payne's little like 15 minutes uh, story in that movie is amazing. So I don't know. There's something about his sensibilities that really get to me because it's like <coughs> you could be Excuse laughing me. hysterically one minute and then just like on the verge of tears the next. And I like that sort of frantic emotional shift that he has, you know. And, and I don't know. There's about Schmidt's amazing, and it, it's it's one of those movies that really like the everything about it. And you know, even the um, voiceover narration I think works really well because it's Jack Nicholson writing letters to this uh, foster child. And sort of explaining What's where he's at. Ugu or Indugu. Indugu. Yeah. Okay. Dear Indugu. Yeah, that's that is like the, the key. Well, that and naked Kathy Bates, which was another defining <laughs> moment of my life. Uh, yeah, <laughs> but uh, she's but, um, she comes on like a thunderbolt in that movie. She's just well, I mean, it's like it's, it's like this whole movie has this really sweet sort of subdued, uh, you know, like tone to the whole thing where it's just like it's a very sort of like Jack Nicholson reflecting on his life and. You know, his marriage and sort of coming to terms with his daughter is finally, you know, grown up and completely out of the picture. And then all of a sudden, Kathy Bates shows up and is like, comic relief, Kathy Bates. Mm-hmm. But it works so well. And everything about it, I love. I don't think you want to cast Kathy Bates and ask her to be subdued. Nah, you don't need to. That's fine. Yeah. So I'm, I'm yeah, Alexander Payne's really one of, one of my favorite uh, writers and directors, too. So, um, but I, really briefly, since all of us are fans, I wanted to bring up that in a couple of weeks, probably around the time our next episode will be posted up, the uh, season four premiere of Breaking Bad will have will have come out probably that Sunday. It's uh, July 17th. And I was sort of wanting to take my time and rewatch all the seasons because it is my favorite uh, TV show right now. Yeah, I wound up watching it pretty much, you know, in five days or something. Right. I watched... Uh, you know, season one, season two, and season three, pretty much back to back to back, because it, it it's one of the most addictive shows for me. And I know a lot of people, you know, think think you know, like The Wire, or The Sopranos is is the best show of all time. For me, it's Breaking Bad. Like I find so much, um, in the characters, and the performances, and the writing. It's like the the way things build, and I don't know. It's it's and like the fact that his character. It's like you see how. Walt's actions affect everyone in these in extremely significant ways. Yeah. And it's like one decision leads to this it's, virus of consequences, it, and the way it plays out is so it, intense. It's probably like the season premiere I've most anticipated ever, mostly because I can't think of where the fuck they're going to go. I think the I last know. season finale. Like, I, I have an idea. We'll talk about it off the air. Yeah, I don't know. I don't know how you can really continue the story after, like, how it can. Yeah, that's. I'm very interested to see how that's where that's going to go. Probably it's probably going to go for two more seasons, I think. Yeah, I probably won't watch it because I can't. I can't watch like hour long dramas, um, ser- like as they air because what everything that happens in between the week, I always forget what's going on. Right. Um, 
I can understand that. I had that problem even... Uh, AMC was re-airing them all, and they were doing two episodes a day, every weekday. Mm-hmm. And even then, I was sort of like, wait a second. And I would I would keep uh, characters confused and stuff. That's kind of why I wanted to re-watch it all. It's, it's a show that I have. I feel like I have a lot invested in. I, you know, it's something about Walt... You know, just watching him spiral out of control is really compelling for me. Mm-hmm. And you know, just to sort of, and you know, there's 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 some not so little little commentary on on healthcare, <laughs> you know, especially in season one. But I don't know. Yeah, I, I think that's much less. It is later. But yeah. uh, what I what I find really fascinating is there's a lot of. I mean, it's almost a joke that we're like the only way you can get uh, like have a successful cable show is to have a main character who is, like, an anti-hero, who is, yeah. like, a sociopath. Like, that's right. literally every... That's basically... It's, it's Mad Men. It's, it's Mad Men. It's Sopranos. It's Breaking Bad. Yeah. It's uh, Boardwalk Empire. But what I find interesting about this, as opposed to many of those other ones, where a lot of those other shows are about the main characters sort of losing their humanity. Like, this show has been sort of, like, Walt realizing how much humanity he never had to begin with. Oh, I know. He's, he's become such an asshole, but I think he's always been an asshole. Like, I don't think it's really any great spoilers to the basic plot of the movie. He becomes a drug dealer. Right. Uh, but basically, <laughs> I mean, I'm not sure. He's I don't a chem- spoil anything, but... Well, yeah. But I, I love... I he's love, a chem professor turned drug I love dealer. Sort of, sort of the feeling in the first season where he's just sort of realizing, or it's or maybe it's just, like, sort of the audience realizing just, like... Oh wow, this is coming really easy to him. Mm-hmm. <laughs> like, yeah, like obviously there's growing pains, but like the kind of horrible uh, moral gray areas that that would you would expect to be big problems, like not problems at all. Yeah, I find that really interesting. Yeah, and as much as I love Brian Cranston, I mean Aaron Paul is fucking amazing on this show as Who's well. He? He's uh, Jesse. Jesse. Yeah. He's. I. I, I think I mean, like the first season. I wasn't totally sold on him. I mean, he came off as more of a caricature, but I think by the time, you know, well, I don't want to give, uh, this right. is a tough show to talk about, but something happens at the end of season two where I feel like he becomes more fully realized. And no, I, but there are, it's just He a has lot moments of, of breaking down. It's like really amazing. I, do, I don't think he's, I, like I there think are he's, moments, pretty, he's pretty convincing. I, yeah, but there are moments where you just sort of see him like really straining and act like um, the super emotional moments. I always feel like, uh feels nah. a little bit like I don't think he's that I don't think he's Brian Cranston good he's not as good as Brian Cranston but I, I think really his like, character is becoming more interesting well, it's his the wife's f- name Skylar yeah I really like her oh yeah a lot um, I didn't at first but I've I was grown really, to really like her I really fascinated by uh, uh, his brother-in-law's arc yeah um, how yeah. initially I was like oh Jesus Christ I was sort but of writing him off season yeah, one yeah it was really like really one note and boring right. he became a lot more interesting no, it's really it's a really good show. I definitely would not put it on the same level as Sopranos or The Wire, but it's definitely Most people like an wouldn't. amazing show. But it's like when I know I I have like, you know, this in, like insane response to a show because like I love The Wire. Uh-huh. And I've seen one season of The Wire, seen one season of The Sopranos, and I'm going to watch them both again. Yeah, I gotta, promise, you, but I'm like for some reason I'm so Soprano, you haven't seen the best of The Wire or The Sopranos. I know. Though. I realize that. I realize yeah. that. For some reason this show's got me hooked and I think anyone else out there who wants great television um don't worry about the killing because yeah. I hear it really goes yeah. down the Bemis. Yeah, yeah. Hot, after hot, a while. Hot tip. Don't know don't know uh don't know if you guys have heard that Breaking Bad show is pretty good. <laughs> yeah, I think so. <laughs> you know, both people have been trying to keep it quiet about Breaking Bad. Yeah. But uh, I'm going to go ahead and go on a limb and say it's a good show. Yeah. Your thoughts on the show, Megan? Because I know you're a fan after introducing it to you. So. Oh, um, 
You said most of the. <laughs> okay, sorry. I, I really I like his son, actually. Yeah. I I don't know. Mm-hmm. I. I would agree with that. Or I would I would have a hard time like quantifying like what what it is that like I find special about his son having a disability, but I I think it's a really good. I think it's well, I like interesting how- that his son has a disability, and I think he's a interesting portrayal of a character with does, a disability. Yeah, absolutely. Does the actor does the actor have a disability? I don't know. I keep wondering that. That's a good question. Yeah, I, I haven't looked bothered into to look that. It yeah, up, but uh, huh? He, if if not, he does a very very good job. It's not often you see people with like sort of mental disabilities being portrayed in like being fully dimensional, you know, characters or either saints or their punchlines you know yeah although jason ritter on joan of arcadia he was he also had a disability well, he was joan of arcadia I oh mean, please, now you're please, talking please 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 wire territory i know people want to lump that in sort of the lifetime category but no it's really it's a that really that special show, show where the theme song is <laughs> that i promise you i know you want to lump in the lifetime category sure joan osborne did the theme song Joan of Arcadia. But I promise you, it was a really Brilliant. complex take on spirituality. Oh, uh, Joe Montaigne and Mary Steenburgen were amazing on that show. And no need to mention Joe, the lead Joe actress. Montaigne, Joe of Montaigne. Yeah. <laughs> what did you, did really you watch anything? Show. Yeah, you Megan, what did you watch this week? Anything cool? Uh, Other than Cronenberg? Um, God, I watch so many things in a week because I work from home and I just have Netflix on in the background all the time. I watch a lot of Dateline and National <laughs> Geographic documentaries. I watched a really good film about Lyme disease. Whoa! <laughs> it was actually really interesting, though. I didn't realize how messed up chronic Lyme disease could be and how much doctors try to cover up its existence. Why do they cover up its existence? Or it's a really complex issue, but um, basically, like, the... Something about the rights to the research for Lyme disease and the professors who are researching it, like, are all in league with the insurance companies uh, and uh, maybe, the maybe. complicated web of basically doctors not being very motivated to provide treatment to people they suspect of having Lyme disease, so they Fuck. don't. Well, basically, like, people, they don't provide treatment to it, and it just gets really, really bad. Mm-hmm. And then when people are having acute neurological symptoms, they act like it's all in their heads, and they need psychiatric help. Oh, fuck, help. I hate that. Yeah. <laughs> yeah, it's pretty it's pretty messed I'll up. I'll probably have to check that out. I wonder if lemon disease, though, is feeling neglected from, you know, from Lyme disease, <laughs> you know. Anyway. Lyme. <laughs> Any, what else has stood out for you this week? Any uh, movies of... Uh, that you watched like an instant or something oh, cool. I'm trying to remember what? Uh, oh, Modern Romance. Oh, yeah. oh, I love that movie. That was a good movie. Yeah, I, I know I've watched. Albert Brooks ones. is amazing. Uh, that movie. I can't wait till we do the Albert Brooks episode because I really was really underwhelmed by that movie. There's parts of it I really like, and then there are like 20 minute segments where they're just editing a movie. And it is I don't like I don't know if it's supposed to be a meta joke that 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 scene should have been cut out or something, mm-hmm. but it is so boring. I wasn't bored. I was so bored during that whole thing. Wow. No. Yeah. I think a lot of it. I mean, a lot of my love for that movie does have to come with the with the sequence where he's just run, you know, walking around the house on lewds. No, that's great. There's yeah. some, there's a lot of really great things in these. And when he's buying all the exercise equipment, 
Um, he's no, it's there's a lot. I tend of stuff to do that really though good. with movies, though. I mean, it's like that's kind of my flaw. I've always thought where what? it's like, I love twenty minutes of this movie, so therefore the movie's great. Well, I mean, <laughs> you not know? all movies have a great twenty minutes, like that scene where he's walking around and loot. I'm not. I well, I know why. Or this, or that first date where he keeps circling around. Yeah. No, I was talking about this with Eric Childress. Uh, uh, well, not really talking. We were sort of communicating via email and on Twitter about like something we could bring up for maybe later when we can think about it more. But movies where it has an amazing like last fifteen minutes that it makes you sort of forget about all the flaws earlier. And I think that's that comes with a lot of movies for me, where it's like I see an amazing 20 minutes and I have such an insane response to that 20 minutes. I'm like, oh, you know what? Even if the rest of the movie is subpar, I'm still going to recognize it for being really amazing well, just because of 20 minutes or whatever. I fell asleep for the last 20 minutes of that Which is movie, fine. So. I, I also watched Babe Pig in the City. I was yeah. more excited about If it that has movie. talking animals, that's another Jim Bias. Really? I love talking, talking animals. Talking animals? Yeah. I normally do not like movies How with talking. How old are you, Jim? We have do you to, like Babe Pig in the City? I haven't seen it. We have, you haven't we have seen it? It's with amazing. I like, I, like the, I like Happy Feet, which the director also did, which is another movie that I've heard. What I've heard about he doesn't Big have Pig the, the city, most consistent track record well, no, no, I like how, no, no, what I've heard about Big Pig in the City is that it like goes a lot darker and kind of weirder. Oh, than yes. Expect. Oh, yeah. my gosh. Well, that's the same with Happy Feet. Happy Feet, he ends up in a zoo, and he's like hallucinating that his mom is talking to him, and he's just yeah. screaming, and then there's and then it like shows a bunch of people like pointing through the glass and laughing. Like, there's I forgot really dark, about all that. There's really dark <laughs> moments in Happy Feet. I don't think it's – I mean, I'm not saying Happy Feet's a great movie, but – there is there is that point at well where I was like, oh Jesus Christ, <laughs> got to be better than Gordy, right, Patrick? <laughs> Come on, <laughs> wait, you, you'd Megan. love it. You'd like Babe Pig Megan, in the City. Is there a scene in Babe Pig in the City where they put sunglasses on the pig? No, no. the monkeys uh, wear. Clo- I think one of the monkeys might wear sunglasses. Okay, okay, we're good. We're Did you love in. the scene with the cats and? The cat's tails are swinging back and forth. As I the, like They're that. being conducted I... by another cat. That's the most the cutest part, thing. The part in that movie. <laughs> the part in that movie that gets to me is when Thelonious the orangutan is holding the goldfish and they're capturing all the animals. Yeah. And they put the net over him and the goldfish bowl breaks and the goldfish <laughs> is just flopping around <laughs> on the floor. And like they take Babe away and you think, for a minute that the goldfish is going to die. Yeah. I want you guys to just sort of take a minute and sort of review everything you said in the past two minutes and think about what if someone had never seen Babing in the city. And your Barcelonius, the orangutan is holding the goldfish, and then they try to take Babe away. You think the goldfish is going to die. I'm like, are you guys talking about Babe Pig in the city or are you guys talking about your favorite mushroom trips? Probably both. <laughs> <laughs> no, it's like the guy who did the fucking Road Warrior did this movie. It's dark as fuck. Really? Yeah. The guy the Road Warrior did those movies. Yeah. We should do him. Oh, we and should definitely. He did do Mad him. Max. Yeah. Mad Babe, Mad huh? Pig. It's basically <laughs> the same movie. I love the oh. Road Warrior, but yeah, uh, you I'm a should for talking animals. And you love the Tina Turner song. No, that's uh, that's Thunderdome. Oh, yeah, Thunder he did not do that. I don't think. We don't need another hero. Now, George Miller, let's see, George Miller produced, da, 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 directed, he directed Happy Feet, Babe Pig in the City, Witches of Eastwick, Lorenzo's Oil. Ooh, Witches oh, of Eastwick. Oh, he did Thunderdome. Oh, I'm so wrong. I'm the wrongest I've ever been. Uh, Colin could defend Thunderdome. <laughs> he did a segment on Twilight Zone, the movie, 
uh, segment four. Do you remember which? Do you remember the order? The good one. No, he did the he did the one with Lisco at the end. The the the. the uh, That's the good one. Yeah, the remake of uh, fucking Nightmare at thirty thousand feet or twenty thousand leagues under the sea. Albert Brooks is so, in that movie. Yeah, at the very beginning. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Did you like the John Lithgow one? I didn't see that. I didn't see Twilight Zone the movie. I'm. Oh. You guys have to understand. Like part of the reason I'm doing the July shittacular is I'm very good at avoiding movies that I don't think I'll like or movies I just think will be okay. You'd like, like Twilight Zone the movie, I, but it looks. It looks like I might just think it's okay, and I feel like there's too many masterpieces and like really good movies I yeah. love that I haven't seen. Like Babe, you, Pig you know in the, the tragedy, like Babe, Pig in yeah. the City, or or Superman Four, which I watched recently. <laughs> you know, you know the tragedy tragedy behind uh, Twilight Zone the movie, right? With uh, Jennifer Jason Leigh's father. I heard that no, the uh, director. I, I heard that the director yeah. of Twilight Zone the movie saw a man drowning, and then he sent <laughs> tickets to the guy who didn't save him. And then he sang, uh, he sang in the air tonight, right there to his face. Yeah. No, uh, Vic Morrow was killed uh, during a helicopter crash that John Landis was directing for the, his segment of the Twilight Zone movie, and Vic Morrow was Jennifer Lee's, Jason Lee's dad. That's so, the real tragedy. Yeah. Oh, that's very sad. Yeah, I know. Mm-hmm. So, I think we discussed that a little bit in the John Landis. I episode. feel like we did. Yeah, yeah. yeah that was... I don't know how I would have been able to avoid it. No, I think that the, if you just skip the first two segments of the Twilight Zone movie, it's great. Even like just watch it's... the hour Joe Dante and George Miller episodes. Even if it's like an accident and not even completely your fault, I feel like if if a director has killed someone, I'm going to mention it. Well, yeah. Speaking of which, you know what I learned uh, reading a John Waters book? He killed somebody. Oh. oh. He was driving a car, and an old man who, who apparently had dementia, like walked right in front of it. And apparently, there was a cop right there. And if there was, like the cop right there was like, "No, I saw what happened. It wasn't your fault." <laughs> but yeah, apparently, he he killed someone with his car. Wow. And there's like a there's like a shot in Serial Mom where there's a person on the windshield of a car, and that's what that's from. I bet Sam Raimi's never killed anybody. I bet I bet Sam Raimi maybe he lent them the wrong barbecue sauce. <laughs> Poisoned it. (laughs) (laughs) Let's get on to our director of the episode on that happy note. Let's get excited about Mr. David Cronenberg. I like David Cronenberg. I know he makes some really strange films. He likes psychology. An honorary degree in philosophy. His films keep getting better. Full of erotic imagery. Creatures that look like vaginas Human flesh meshed with technology I remember when I was watching Scanners and Crash Fly the Brood, Eastern Promises Dead Ringers, Dead Zone, Existence Videodrome, Naked Lunch, History of Violence And I, I Remember long live the new flesh And I, I Remember William Burroughs as a cockroach friend? Now we're gonna talk about Cronenberg, 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 Cronenberg. Part storyteller and part psychologist, David Cronenberg is a Canadian filmmaker with a penchant for integrating the macabre with the erotic. In the first half of his career, he was pro- known primar- primarily as a horror filmmaker, lumped in alongside guys like John Carpenter with uh, filmmakers who both had this penchant for social commentary beneath the rather brutal acts of gore and violence. 
Later in Cronenberg's career, he took a more dramatic turn while retaining an avid interest in the physicality and the psychological nature behind humanity, all while dealing with the themes of sexuality, technology, and where our bodies fit into the struggle for basic human needs. If there's one issue that keeps coming up in the majority of his work, it is the duality of man and the disintegration of identity. This is explored to great lengths in the first, in the first film we'll be discussing, Dead Ringers. This driven Dr. Beverly Mantle. By every scientific measure, they are absolutely the same. They share everything. You haven't had any experience until I've had it too. Maybe you've got to try the movie star. She's unbelievable. Doctor, you've cured me. You mean to say there's two of them? They're twins, dear. I think we should drop her, Beth. You drop her. I'm in love with her. I'll be love if it does this to you, Kenneth. Doctor, I think there's something wrong with you. Patients are getting strange. What are they? They're working on mutant women. From David Cronenberg, who in The Fly made the fantastic real. Get him out of here! Radical technology was required. Something radical is definitely required. Drug addiction, sexual expression, unconventional fetishes, identity preservation, all things that our first film, Dead Ringers, explores in a very clinical setting as the great Jeremy Irons plays twin gynecologists who begin to unravel when a complicated relationship interferes with their practices. Elliot is the more confident of the two, while Beverly is a little bit more introverted. When a beautiful actress named Claire Naveau is allowed into their world, Beverly develops unexpected feelings that lead to complicated affections, accompanied by severe dependence on both the woman of his affections as well as a plethora of illegal substances. As a result of these drug-induced hallucinations that Beverly has, he becomes convinced that there are mutant women that must be operated on using homemade surgical instruments. This is the type of terrain that Cronenberg explores best. Vivid characters losing themselves in obsession and delusion to the point where it corrupts family, friends, and lovers to the point of madness. And this could very well be one of my favorite David Cronenberg movies, and... Um, a lot of it has to do with uh, the performance by Jeremy Irons here. Performances. Performances, yes. It's Two kind very of a, distinct performances. Kind of masterful, yeah, very much so. Um, and it's like the th- there's something that obviously keeps coming up, and you know it has to do with Cronenberg's interest in technology and how it's sort of invading our lives for better and for worse. But he sort of uh, in in some weird twisted way he's, he 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 romanticizes technology and he he, he in like the uh i listened to the um commentary for another great film of his videodrome and at one point he sort of says that you know we're becoming dependent on it but in a good way like the fact that technology is sort of we're becoming you know, closer and closer to it to, you know, obviously pacemakers and all these different things are saving lives. And in, and in this movie, he's, he's sort of touching on, not necessarily for the first time, because the fly and Videodrome were, were, were similar 
in in those themes as well but here he's he's sort of commenting on the on the fact that you know that um people you know in particular become you know enraptured with the idea of fixing their bodies and perfecting their bodies and at one point i think um there's a commentary from from one of the characters i can't remember if it was elliot or beverly about pain and how it's not necessary right it's not necessary And I think that's that's a very telling uh, theme that pops up in a lot of Cronenberg's work as well. Well, yeah, and though in this case it's not so much like it's not so much literally their bodies as much as it's sort of them working as one sort of machine. Yeah, um, it's not so much they're trying to say perfect their muscles or the way their mind mm-hmm. works. It's it's about just sort of this finely tuned, completely antisocial sort of irresponsible uh, machine that they've created where yeah. they're completely, you know, sort of codependent on each other. Um, that was actually, the, the, I remember the first time I saw it, I really liked it and I was really impressed by it, but I really didn't know what, what the hell it was supposed to be about because I had sort of different expectations. Yeah. Um, mostly I was sort of like looking for more of the, the body horror that I sort of come to know Cronenberg for, especially given their the nature of their jobs as gynecologists. I really mm-hmm. expected that to come. Um, but I, it felt a lot more psychological now in terms of sort of talking about like codependence and yeah, um, and which I find more interesting. Now, I find the clinical nature of his movies kind of off-putting, um, which is understandable, and that's one of Ebert's criticisms. Um, I I think it fits this movie definitely. Not yeah. not just because that's because that's what the movie's about. Sort of how the characters approach. Yeah, there's um, a lot of sort of gray and like sort of cold blue saturation throughout, especially like the clinical scenes. Um, By the way, is why, why do they dress like, like, like well, monks or yeah, like, I know like that's the red. the red. Yeah. What is that? Yeah. Is that, I don't know. Is, that's not an actual thing. Is it? Or is that a Canadian thing or I'm not sure. Actually, that's something to look up for sure. I'm, I don't know if that was a cinematic touch of his or not. Yeah. Like, like they're like, like they're like performing not not a surgery, but they're like performing a curse or a spell or something like, yeah. Like, like they were members of a clergy. Um, I found that interesting. Um, I'm actually I'm excited to talk about this with you because again, another problem with Cronenberg is I often I often always I always like his movies, but I often feel like I'm not really getting it. Um, so I uh, my question for you is later on, um, you you touched on this um, in the plot synopsis. He begins to feel that. The, uh, the the women that he's seeing, or not the women he's seeing like romantically, the women his patients, their insides are wrong, and I was wondering what you guys because that was like the one part of the movie I still didn't quite understand. Was it? I feel like it was a drug induced hallucination, right? So I don't think it was really literally happening. Well, no, I know that uh, I didn't. But was it? You think it was just because the woman that he had that had broken his heart or that he thought had cheated on him, she had. Three, what is it, cervical entrances? or Yeah, something like that. Mm-hmm. Um, Just it... cervical abnormality, I guess. I, I so forgot, forgot seeing... what the exact term was. So he was seeing her in all the women he was seeing, or, or is there a that different... That could be possible. Is there something David Cronenberg I feel is like, saying? I feel like it's in the same case of, I don't know about a couple other movies, but in particularly uh, his movie Spider, there's a lot of projection. Mm-hmm. A lot of projection from the male psyche going on. And like if he feels... You know, sort of. Um, uh, I don't say the word "overwhelmed" is the right word, but he feels a little intimidated by, 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 by women in general. 
whether physically or emotionally, I, I you know like his char- the character in Spider and then and then I think uh, Beverly in this in this movie seem very um, disconnected from being able to socially the first, interact. The and, first line is about how, uh, or not the first, but the the opening discussion in the movie is is them as children and they're talking right. about sex. How how fish don't have to have sex because mm-hmm. they uh, they ha- they just can um, you know lay eggs in water and then you know ejaculate in water and they don't have to actually have the contact and I believe it is Beverly who goes who goes oh that sounds much better I'd prefer yeah. that <laughs> yeah I, I feel like actual human contact scares Beverly and but I, you know but, but, but when, mean, he, when it, he gets there but he changes you know once yeah. he actually f- develops these intense feelings for Claire it seems like you know it changes him and then when she rejects him he becomes you know addicted to drugs and mm-hmm. you know i you know i don't know if it's necessarily like you know he's actually literally you know seeing these manifestations or not because you know I, well i mean like different drugs i mean obviously meth can create schizophrenic sort of um projections too but i don't know it's it's that's that's a really interesting component of cronenberg's work is because like i feel like he adds a lot of Freudian touches to his movies that I sort of react to in in very visceral ways, and this movie definitely has that. Well, also toward the beginning more so than the end, but he seems to have a lot of anxiety that, um, or like they're they're kind of doubling off and like trying to play with the idea that this woman isn't going to know who's who. And he seems to have this anxiety about his brother doing things that he wouldn't do. And like the idea of having some sort of sinister self brought Mm -hmm. out of your personality and being exposed. Yeah, for Um, sure. By the way, um, that, that scene where he reveals the surgical tools it's one of the most, like, one of the greatest, like, holy shit moments when you first, like, I mean, you see the blueprints, but when yeah. he unrolls, like, the cloth and there's, like, these, they look like insect legs. <laughs> like, they they look like, like, props that, you know, you would see in Naked Lunch or something where yeah. um, that is, that's such, and it's just, you, there's sort of the power of suggestion there where you're automatically imagining them being used as tools of surgery and it's just so disturbing. Um, yeah, so Robert uh, has this really creative way of viewing these things. Like, I mean, I mean, just almost like, I mean, that's why I thought, found it interesting that he went to the artist to, you know, come up with these, uh, um, the word, um, not the actual tools, but just sort of the replicas, I guess. Yeah. Um, yeah, and I, I, that's how, like in all of Cronenberg's movies, you can always find like an image whether it be phallic or not, of like you know just something abnormal that's sort of separate from the human body, like I think of the pods and existence sort of being vaginal, um, you know, and just like they have um, what's the the umbilical cord yeah. that connects. There's always just something. There's like, the dream sequence in which they have sort of a uh, pulsating, yes, conjoined yeah. um, flesh between them. Right. Um, well, in that scene where um, he's tying up the girl, um, yeah, with the with the medical hose, yeah, yeah, it it looks kind of like an umbilical cord, right? Yeah, and actually, there's in the in the scene in the beginning of the movie when they're children and they're playing with the model plastic body, they have I noticed they had that body tied down with the exact same 
um, mm-hmm. plastic tube Ooh. or thinner. So yeah. it's, it's sort of like connecting the two where he, they're even, you know, even sex is just sort of this sort of examination of, um, you know, it's, it's, it's less of, uh, like pure, uh, recreation and it's, it's even just them sort of toying with these women and stuff like that. Right. Um, Oh, it's interesting that, that he goes to the artist to have him design the tools because right. their whole basis for their success in the beginning of the film is that they design these tools themselves mm-hmm. and their professor comes around and he's like, you can't operate with those tools. These are all wrong. And then, like, it comes back around. Well, I think at that point he was on drugs. He was on enough drugs. Yeah. Like, maybe he wouldn't be able to sort of create. I mean, I think that might just be sort of an example of just showing how far he has come from his normal very put together, complete, controlled self. Um, I do like, I think, I think what sort of makes this movie um, really work is that you can tell David Cronenberg um, kind of sympathizes with them and sort of identify, like there's a great scene where, um, where uh, the, what's, what's the actress's name or Claire. Yeah. Yeah. Where they're first having dinner with Claire or I believe it was Elliot who's having dinner with Claire disguised as Beverly. Um, And, Claire is asking about what's wrong with her with her uterus, and then there's another guy there who's just like Ugh! he like sort of coughs and gets freaked out and leaves. Yeah, and you can tell that David Cronenberg does not sympathize with that guy. He sympathizes with the person who wants to know about the. <laughs> yeah, I, I feel like he, he has a lot of sympathy for all of his lead characters, no matter how fucked up they are. Well, I mean, the thing is, like, I, that's actually something I like. I mean, I don't know about so much of his earlier work. The, he, but... Yeah, well, he he sort of infamously said like people asked him why um his first sort of major film shivers yeah they sort which is about sort of aliens um and almost as an std sort yeah, of I taking think it, over i don't know if it was aliens or zombies i can't remember but yeah, i think it was it's, like it's, it's, it's basically zombies. an aids sort of allegory um, at the time i think it might have come out before that though i might have come out before it might AIDS, have. so it might have just but anyway um they go oh why does it have such a depressing ending he goes no it's a it's a happy ending if you are rooting for the aliens like, right. I think that's sort of like a key, like, oh, he's not he he's not exactly viewing this with a lot of empathy for his main characters. He's more examining them than he is sort yeah. of. Um, and I think that's actually sort of the key difference between this movie and his movies that came before it and sort of the movies that came after it, like uh, Naked Lunch or Spider or later we'll talk about the history of violence, um, where I think he really finally, I mean, even especially like Eastern Promises – his his last movie that uh, was released, like he really emphasizes with the characters more. Yeah, he, he becomes even more of a storyteller. I mean, I think all of his movies have really interesting stories, even if they're sort of, and like a lot, all like I think the majority of his movies are like when we were talking about Walter Hill, they're tight. They're actually like ninety to a hundred minutes yes, long. Absolutely, they never it's overstay not, their and that's welcome. That's something when we talk about history of violence, I'll I'll want to talk about because that's one of the few movies that I wish it wasn't so tight. Yeah, um, but. I can understand that. But I, mostly I felt like the main thrust of sort of Dead Ringers was that it's just like they're completely codependent. And then once he tries to be codependent with Claire, but it doesn't work out the same way. He goes it, back. It completely throws everything off. And then it's just them struggling downhill trying to, like like when Elliot starts taking drugs. Because yeah. he wants to. He wants to sort of be on the same level. Yeah. Um, just sort of, because, you know, it's like there's a desperation for connection again. Yeah. And that sort of seems to go away with time and you know you try to find you know some sort of um outlet again whether if it's 
through you know the compassion and love he feels for Claire or drugs you know it's and you know their love for their work it, you know they're trying to find all these different things and they can't seem to connect again and you know the uh the inevitable sort of separation again like i you know a lot of his movies deal with losing yourself in yeah. either technology or a fetish or something yeah well yeah one of the interesting things is like there's a lot of a thing I, I sort of like about his movies is there's a lot of movies about people like sort of finding the dark side of their like life or yeah. finding an under seedy underworld mm-hmm. but his movies start off with people who are already on the edge. Yeah, Jeff like Goldblum and the Fly. Jeff Goldblum and the Fly, Videodrome, espe- right. especially uh, Naked Lunch. Um, this, like, all of these characters are not normal guys who discover sort something of, yeah. creepy. These are people who They've are always already been on that the edge. Way. They've always been that way, probably. And yeah, who are already on the edge, who just make the mistake of going too far. Yeah. Um, yeah. Even Crash starts out with David Sp- James, or James Spader having this sort of. Uh, you know, vehicle technology fetish. Yeah, and we can, we'll definitely talk about uh, our feelings on that one in particular because I feel like Dead Ringers succeeds where Crash fails. Right. Well, yeah, I don't want to spend too much time yeah. on it, but um, I think, I, again, you mentioned Jeremy Irons' performance, but yeah, it's phenomenal. Like, just the, 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 the biggest testament to his to his craft that I can give is that I never once was thinking, oh, wait, who am I looking at? When it's not even like, it's like every single time it showed a character, I always knew exactly whether it was Beverly or Elliot. Yeah, I know. They're very distinctive, And Beverly occasionally wears glasses, and that's how they distinguish a lot during the scenes where they're together. Mm -hmm. But there's a lot of scenes where they're not, and where Elliot's wearing glasses. And um, Yeah. um, So what are, uh, is there any other like sort of images or sort of ideas or interesting sort of parts of the movie that you really like? Um, yeah, I touched on a good chunk of them. Um, can I, can, any thoughts? Can I say my main two? Yeah. My f- number one, um, when, uh, Elliot has the, the twin prostitutes over and he, and he makes one call him Elliot and one call him Beverly, mm-hmm. where it's like this moment where he's trying, like he, he can't be with Beverly and he can't be part of that unit. So he's trying to see if he can be that just himself. Yeah. Um, he sort of takes upon himself to become both parts of it, and it's sort of... And in the movie, I mean, in the beginning of the movie, it seems like Beverly is the really only codependent one, and Elliot is sort of more self-confident and more... Right. But there are subtle ways, that scene included, where you could realize Elliot is hurting just as much from the way that um, Claire has sort of thrown their relationship out of whack. Yeah. Um, And it's, I mean, later on in the movie, Elliot really gets out of hand, but... For, like that's sort of like the first um, key scene. Besides, like sort of, um, you know, doubts, initial doubts he raised, where you're like, oh, he's really hurting from this. Mm-hmm. And then another scene. Um, I don't think it's a prostitute. I think it's his sort of sometimes girlfriend, where they're all dancing together, and uh, Elliot and Beverly sort of envelop. Yeah, that's a really amazing moment. And you can't like can't even see her anymore. They're just sort of dancing with each other, and they're just using her to yeah. to sort of reestablish that connection. That's a like. I, I I wouldn't. I mean, David Cronenberg's movies always look great, but I wouldn't say he necessarily um, always makes these really amazing images. But that is sort of like a really David Lynchian kind of uh, quality to it, where that that's definitely one of the main images that sticks out in my brain whenever I think of the movie. I think there's always a moment in almost every Cronenberg movie where there's a shocking, not necessarily like a you know like a schlocky moment, but more of a you know there's some sort of gore or something involving the flesh. 
you know, and here is the dream sequence. Um, but I, I don't know. There's always something that makes me think, oh, well, that's that's a Cronenberg moment. You know, I don't know if it's necessarily like just, you know, when I think of throat slitting and in, in Eastern Promises or the way Viggo Mortensen shoots that guy in the diner yeah. in History of Violence, but there's always like, oh, my God, you know, like a shocking... Well, visceral yeah, I mean, response to the, violence, and the, I, he never she, sort of, he most, never shies away from that. Well, yeah, well, the most obvious, and again, it's not his movies are gory, but they're never gory in the way that Sam Raimi's movies are gory, or that right. John Carpenter would make. Like he doesn't; it's not entertainment. He's he's fascinated by it. I know, and it's, that's and, he, and he's fascinated and by you can technology totally tell just by the way the way he shoots it and the way he lingers on things. That it's not about the blood splattering; it's about the. Like, again, the yeah. example used in Eastern Promises, that was the first moment in that movie where I was like, because I was sort of led to believe that this was sort of a, that Eastern Promises was sort of less Cronenberg-y than a yeah. lot of his movies. But that sort of first moment where it lingers on the the, throat. the, the slit throat yeah. sort of opening, I'm like, oh, okay, no. That's this Cronenberg, is, right. Yeah. Um, so it'll be interesting to see if that happens in his new movie. Yeah, or how it would. <laughs> yeah, I don't know how that's going to play into it. I'm really excited about that uh, movie. You have no idea how excited I am about that movie. Yeah, I mean, I like. I think he's he he has an inherent sort of concern about where this technology is taking us. But I think he well, I he's he's almost like. Can you explain? Like, because I never. I, I don't know. If I it's, definitely agree with what you're saying, but I don't think that really applies to Dead Ringers. Like, what's the technology no, in Dead Ringers that well, would use? I don't know necessarily if it's technology. I think it's more of just the 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 body becoming, uh, not necessarily dependent, but just. They're, again, he's sort of romanticizing those surgical instruments in a way, but then you know it's like at one point they can save a woman, or you know they can help them, and then at one point it's like he, it sort of turns against him with with Beverly's intentions. Mm-hmm. It's like taking that idea of you know oh we can rely on this doctor to help us and the surgery to you know help us, but then look at you know the crazier side of things. It's like he looks at he looks at it in one way and then sort of transitions into the other extreme. Um, but I, I mean, like in general, I don't know if he has like this concern about where we're going, you know, with our humanity and like, are we becoming too dependent on all these different things and substances? I think he's more, he's observing. I don't know if he's necessarily like, you know, saying, making a stance and saying this, you know, this technology or our sexuality or fetishes are taking control of us. Well, I think like, like most great filmmakers, he, what, what sort of makes him good is that he doesn't claim that he's not foolish enough to claim he has an answer. Yeah, he has but an objective I, viewpoint, I think. And it's I, almost like he's looking at things like an empirical scientist, I think. I, but even, you know, just thinking of the intensive way he would have to shoot this just to make the I, the concept of Jeremy Irons playing both his twins work. Yeah. Like that's pretty like pretty clear indicator of, of like that's if I had to think of one thing about technology dead ringers, I'd say, well, the fact that he would go through all of that um to, you know, to make his tech to and then he would be able to use that to tell the story the way he wants to tell it. Um, that means he's pretty, he's pretty for technology. Speaking right. of which, um, I do have one question. Um, the final, sort of the final scene where they're walking, um, in unison, is that the same take? Cause I had sort of a feeling that when they finally are synced up, cause they're both insanely drugged out of their mind and I want ice cream and orange pop. Uh, yeah. And then there's that one long shot where they're, they're walking through their apartment. It looks like the exact same take. Um, it hmm. might not be because I'm not I'm not sure if it works out with angles and everything, but it looks like he just doubled one take and made it the two characters. 
That's um, interesting. Just, I didn't, I just I didn't notice just, that part. That yeah. was like that was one of the main things I remembered from the first time I saw it. And again, I looked and I couldn't tell a difference, but I wasn't for sure. Um, and it's like I don't know. I'm. Did they almost just become one? Right. Well, that's <laughs> again. They right. became. They had to destroy themselves, but yeah. they became synced, and then, um, and then, and then at the end, Beverly. He said when Beverly sort of. You know, he wants to. He wants to sort of free himself from Elliot by killing him. Mm-hmm. And he, there's there's that great moment where he just sort of wanders. He, he gets all gussied up. He shaves everything, and he goes out to the payphone to call Claire, and because she's now going to be who he's going to be synchronized with. Yeah. And the second he hears her voice, he realizes that he made a huge mistake, um, and that he can't do that. Right. And then uh, he dies with his, you know... I mean, it's not explicitly stated that he dies, but pretty much any life he had goes away with his brother, the same way they were talking about sort of the Siamese twins. Okay, yeah. yeah. So I, I like that was a good ending. <laughs> yeah. No, I, I completely agree. He sort of, like, skewers the kind of expected good twin, bad twin approach to storytelling. Like, you know, there's so many right. movies about and evil is, twins. And it, even at the because beginning, they become it's kind of set up. You think there's one going to be the evil twin and one's going to be the good twin. Right. Mm-hmm. And it does not play out that way. Is there anything else uh, you'd like to add, Megan? Or um, Not really. You pretty much said it. <laughs> Cool. Oh, one thing, we're going to get more into it in the next movie, but again, uh, Howard Shore does, can do really good scores. Um, I almost universally hate all of the scores he does for Cronenberg's movies. Yeah, they don't really stand out in any way, and there's not really I, I mean, distinctive. I've, I've talked about how I don't like or... scores because like, unless they're really, really being used for something, all they're doing is just making noise and like trying to tell the audience how to feel. Yeah, and the thing about David Cronenberg's movies is they're so subtle that that sort of thing works against them. Yeah, it's like the text is there, but the score is sort of highlighting it for you, and I don't really like that because it's the to... only thing in his movies that does do that work for you. Yeah, there's. Yeah, it's interesting because I always respond to music and films in general. Whether no, I really, I really don't like it. Yeah. Whether if it's a score or not, or music itself, and that's one thing about Cronenberg's movies. I can definitely say I. I'm not sure if any of their of the scores that he's used. When we look at his filmography, maybe something will stand out. Um, but Spider sort okay. of suffers from the same thing. I yeah, think. you know, I, I didn't. I wasn't able to finish Spider. I started watching it this morning. So Naked Lunch has the Ornette Coleman. Oh, yeah, Naked Lunch is great. Yeah, um, no, that's did right. Howard Shore do that? Howard Ornette Coleman did it. Okay, oh, yeah. And Howard Shore, I mean, he did the score for Ed Wood, and that's a great score. So. Right. But I need Lord of the Rings, and that's a good score, but. Yeah, no, it's it's one of the weaker elements, but yeah. I don't know. I think, I, I don't know, Dead Ringer is really... I think a lot of it has to do with the characterization here and how strong it is and how what Jeremy Irons brings to this movie yeah. that really makes it stand out, too. In the same way that, like, you know, uh, Jeff Goldblum's performance in The Fly is really outstanding, I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and James Woods is very good in Videodrome. I, th- I don't know. I, th- I, I Cronenberg always can bring out really interesting quirks in his characters and... Um, I don't know. I feel like Jeremy Irons really sells it more than most. The one thing about his, the other thing I would say about the acting of movies is that, is that the supporting characters often feel really flat. Yeah, compared to like all these really good developed. main characters, mm-hmm. um, like you were saying, Jeff, Jeff Goldblum and James Woods, and uh, I was really blown away, blown away by Ray Fiennes and Spider. 
Oh yeah. I was not expecting that at all. But like a lot of the other characters often feel really flat. I mean, Naked Lunch would be a huge exception because everyone in Naked Lunch is brilliant. But oh yeah, no, um, that's true. Mm-hmm. I think he gets again. He he's so concerned with ideas and stuff. Right. That anyone else that is only there to forward the story so he can get to the next, you know, sort of idea and thing he's trying to say, mm-hmm. they sort of get the short shift, which, you know, that's that's not necessarily a bad thing because not every character in a movie needs to have a whole, you know, and that's part of why his movies are so tight is because he doesn't waste any time with any of the yeah. characters that aren't important. Yeah, and I feel like, you know, a lot of people can sort of, like some of my favorite directors, you can sort of say, well, that's you know, Kubrick-esque or Bergman-esque or mm. whatever. I I feel like Cronenberg has such a unique voice and style. And like, like I said at the beginning, you know, he's he sort of has a very psychoanalytical view of, of nature. And, you know, if he wasn't a filmmaker, he might have been a psychologist because he's really interested in, you know, why people are the way they are and why do they go to these extremes. Yeah. But he never judges them or, says, you know, questions... Yeah. you know wh- exactly how they become corrupt it's just it happens it's something that eventually most human beings <laughs> wind up corrupt in some way and you know a lot of it has to do with that's just that's sort of like not necessarily like an evolution but inevitable right that there's that we all happen to some sort of dark side uh, you know at some point in life and he does it very well with almost every movie of his so yeah we can move on to yeah. his next... I mean, like, I know they said that this was sort of his most mature work, his next movie. I don't know. I feel like I feel like Dead Ringers was a step in the, in the more mature, dramatic direction. This is probably his first, yeah, his first because this major was, step. I mean, his, yeah. his movies have always been psychologically complex, even when they were more genre. Right. Like, The Brood, the brood. Is, you know, like, The Brood is all about, you know, divorce and children and the way parents use children against... Like, it's... He was always doing big ideas right but they were sort of in these genre settings um and it was it's actually kind of interesting because a lot of people who were responding to the genre aspect like are kind of disappointed with david cronenberg's work lately um because you know they they want more stuff like the fly or like scanners but yeah no i i but like he went from dead zone to the fly to dead ringers and that's a amazing yeah uh chronology yeah the word (laughs) cool all right, so let's move on to his next film. I believe came out in the year two thousand five. Two thousand five. Oh yeah, I was way off. Cool. <laughs> that was the first movie I ever saw with Russ. That was our first date. Aww. History of Violence <laughs> was your first date. Yeah. Oh man, that's that was so my good. suggestion. All right, well let's go into a history of violence. A history of. Violence. They were gonna kill us. You saved our lives. Hello, my hero. Tom Stall is a family man with long-standing ties to this community. Right now, this community is rallying behind him and calling him a hero. Way to go, Tommy. Great, more reporters. You look like reporters. You're the big hero. Really don't like talking about it, sir. You sure took care of those two bad men, Joey. My name is Tom. It's Joey. You tell me. Sarah? Sarah! My daughter, where is she? What's going on, Dad? They thought they knew me. Thought I was somebody else. Nothing to worry about, Mrs. Stahl. I've been watching over. I don't know what you want, and I don't really care. You should care about what I want, because what I want might change your life. By the 1990s, David Cronenberg's output had slowed down considerably. In the nearly 15 years since 1991's Naked Lunch, he only released five films, 
uh, none of which had had the critical or financial success of his previous work. It was widely believed that his career was coming to an end, having peaked with Naked Lunch, but 2005's A History of Violence brought back a career resurgence for Cronenberg, effortlessly joining his usual psychological complexity with a crowd-pleasing thriller story about a man and his family confronting his violent past. Uh, a History of Violence went on to be one of the best-reviewed movies of the year. Um, and probably rightly so. Uh, I don't, Absolutely. I don't remember what else, a lot of what else came out in 2005, but I can't imagine much of it was much better than A History of Violence. Um, I want to get my big... I really, really like this movie, but so we already sort of all talking about it. Score in this movie is horrible. Yes. It is almost like wall-to-wall... Like, the violins are, this is where you are sad, this is where you're happy, mm-hmm. what's happening now? This is mysterious. Like, yeah. that sort of wall-to-wall string section just is one of my pet peeves in movies. Um, right. And, and I know a complaint around the time that it came out, and I don't really agree with it, and, you know, he was nominated for a supporting actor for a reason, but mm-hmm. everybody felt like William Hurt really stood out like a sore thumb in this movie hamming it up way too much uh sort of disrupting the tone of things just being too goofy and off the wall i it was definitely a different tone but i yeah. don't think it disrupted it i don't like, think it so didn't either feel out of place it didn't subtract from before um he had a little levity with his <laughs> you know hurt i mean maybe it's just because i loved watching him act so fucking much he's yeah. so fun <laughs> yeah that i didn't mind especially because there's not a lot of fun in this movie no, definitely um, or not. Really, if you think about it, in many of Cronenberg's movies, um, but and there's some in The Fly. But other than that, it's... I don't like to have fun when I watch movies. No, that's why. <laughs> okay, that's why I love Cronenberg. Yeah, but this, no, this movie, this movie's really excellent. Um, one of the one of the key things I'd I'd say that really like works in the beginning of the movie is that unlike pretty much every other movie about someone who is confronted with a lie. You can't tell that Vigo Mortensen is lying, um, and and like I feel like every movie does this thing where like actors make these big pauses to sort of indicate, oh, I'm lying, I'm caught in a lie. What do I say? Yeah. But like, despite knowing where it goes, every time I watch it, I'm always like, hey, wait a second, maybe he is just Tom. Maybe he isn't. Maybe, you know, maybe he. Is. I'm sorry. What what are the two character names? I'm always um, Tom and Jerry. Test is Jerry. Joey. 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 <laughs> I don't stutter that much. It was Toe Jam Toe know, Jam and Earl. <laughs> I heard that I heard that Suzanne Vega was supposed to contribute to this movie at one point. Because it's no. Tom, it's Tom's Diner. Yeah. Do, 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 do. Uh, is that the name of that song? Yeah. Okay. I never knew. I am um, coming to rob your diner, said the Two guys who walked who, in. Oh, what? Who is the actor? <laughs> Who's the actor who played the older? Um, I don't know, but he sure reminded me of Lance Hendrickson. No, uh, hold on, I'm going to look it up. You, you guys talk about a history of violence. I'm going to go on IMDb and look up this actor who I loved. Oh, Stephen McCaddy. I don't know who that is. Uh, he is the main character in Pontypool. <gasps> Remember? Oh, that's where I know yeah, him from. Yeah, he's great. Fucking he's really that guy is awesome. He's Canadian. Yeah. Like Cronenberg. Right. Um that's where I know him from. You can see the he has those wild eyes. Uh I love <laughs> I love I love the uh sort of single camera or single take opening of the movie. Yes. Um where you know something's going on, but there's just sort of that reveal where like, oh shit, things are a lot worse like you you think they're outlaws on the run, and then suddenly it's just like, no, they're kind of just heartless murderers. Like it's not just they robbed a bank. 
Yeah, and interesting, I don't know if any of other Cronenberg's works were based on graphic novels before, but this was... Oh, no, I don't yeah. think so. Yeah, I think this was his first adaptation of a graphic novel. Yeah, and uh, I think this is one of the only movies he where the credits actually play out over the over the, like the first scene. Most of his movies, the credits are completely separate. Yeah, that's true. Mm-hmm. Um, I do like the opening credits. Uh, I forgot to mention, I do like the opening credits of Dead Ringers with those yeah. sort of... Like engraved engravings from medical I did like the music of... of the opening credits too. Well, right, yeah. That opening scene of History of Violence is one of the only examples of sound or background sound that I really like in oh, the yeah. film mm-hmm. because it's a diegetic sound. It's like the or I don't know what makes that sound that like sound that you always hear in the summer, like of an air conditioning, like cicadas, like mixing yeah. together that hum sound. And it, like, I don't know, it just, like, creates this amazing tension. Oh, totally. It's, yeah. It's sort of weird. We talked a little bit about the, about the Peter Weir episode where, um, I, ironically, some of my favorite scores are when, instead of music, it's just sort of atonal sounds that mm-hmm. build and rise and build tension. And that's totally how the, uh, how the music-free opening works. Um, and it is. And, and I, I sort of like how they sort of introduce a certain kind of... Of violence and evil, and it's, um, it's sort of exploring different kinds in this movie. Where, what is exactly self-defense? What is exactly uh, murder? What's you, you know? Can you walk away from it? How it yeah. affects you? And I like how they they open with the purest example, which is completely irredeemable, unsympathetic killers who, you know, sh- sh- he shoots the little girl. And then cut to the hardworking all American oh, small yeah. town, you know. I like just I, I, he's really good at contrasting things, and obviously we'll get into the, uh, the 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 two sex scenes in particular and how yeah. different they play out. And he's you know again he's really good at dichotomies and sort of like exploring, you know, the two extremes that people can go to, just uh-huh. like you know being the all American nice dad and then. You know, transitioning. <laughs> I, lo- I do like like that scene is supposed to be a little cheesy, where like yeah. the teenage brother is like, "Hey, what's wrong?" Sis? I know. <laughs> and they all get in the bed, like, "Oh, she had a bad dream." Yeah, I know <laughs> that the way that it cuts to that. That's um, I and I do like the sort it's of like the, something out of the fifties. <laughs> I feel like the casting of Vigo Mortensen was so brilliant in that there's no way you buy him as this character. <laughs> yeah, because you just like he's just so so like rugged and just like so physical and sort of weird looking that like him is just like the all-american spielbergian kind of dad just doesn't right. fit um and that's like i totally buy him though as someone who could think he was this character, yeah yeah no which is why know, it's so effective right but like there's just something like weird about the way he looks compared to the rest of the family and mm. he's all craggy yeah he's, he's all <laughs> craggy and like scarred and uh but again, he just, just dresses like a dork, and it opens like a Spielberg movie where there's just scenes in the the, the you know they're yeah. in the brec- around the breakfast table and they're all talking and and oh, can you give me a ride to work? I need to like that's that's totally uh, the um, the Brody family like at the beginning mm-hmm. of Jaws, um, and uh, and it, and it it is to his credit that it never feels like it's a parody. Because it really brushes right up against that line, but it never initially it does. Yeah, yeah, I think. Well, I mean, obviously, once things yeah, know, once, once it hits the fan, it 
once we get, I don't, I, I definitely have like intense reactions to like when bull, you know, bullies are picking on the guy, or, you know, his really? son. Yeah, I, 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 like I, I do. Was one, that was one of the worst. I don't think it's a good actor. No, this is, I don't think. No, his son is such. Yeah. Oh, the I thought the son was. Fine. Oh, I thought the son was a shitty bull- actor. I thought, the, I thought the bully was a shitty yeah, actor. Yeah, no, the bully's bully worse. was like I, it doesn't like this is actually people. One of my one of my favorite graphic novels. And I know it's a graphic novel. You know, Black Hole. Mm-hmm. People have said that oh, David Cronenberg should do it because there's a lot of body horror and stuff like that in mm-hmm. it. But mm-hmm. like the teenagers, like the way they talk to each other, are written so bad. Um, like just where it's just like, hey, you caught my ball that I hit. Fucking faggot! Like it's like it seems to come out of nowhere and just and like, and you know sometimes these things come out of nowhere, but you have to find a way to make it feel real, and it never it always felt like kind of silly to me. That was where right. it did sort of pass the point into parody. Um, yeah, wow. yeah, I could say yeah, I could see that. So that scene kind of didn't really work for me. It wasn't horrible because I I thought the I thought the son was a good actor, um, uh, but. I thought I mostly I think I respond to when I I think there are so few teenage sort of main he's not he's not the protagonist or main character but he's a significant character mm-hmm. and I feel like the shorthand a lot of people do is they'll make him a type where he'll be and I felt I felt really redeemed that he didn't necessarily he wasn't a nerd necessarily and he wasn't necess, like he he didn't really fit in any one type and that's sort of what a lot of movies do when they're like he, they could have easily yeah. cast him as and he was just sort of a smart ass, but he wasn't really super smart, like where it was just like super precocious and you know, talking like Juno or whatever. It was <laughs> you know, he wasn't like whipping out one liners and stuff when he was getting bullied. Yeah, he seemed pretty normal. So I thought I I mean, it might be just the way the character is written more than the a- actor, but I like that character. Um and I felt the character's actually shortchanged later on. When he like I felt like he goes through one of the most Interesting things. Yeah, he has an interesting arc, to but, say the least. With... But it gets cut. It gets cut short. Which, um, yeah, I would feel. I mean, I, it's I more would, focusing about... on. Is that your Tom. primary concern with how it was cut too tight? Yes. Um, yeah, that's what I want to talk about. Is I feel that third... also we're going to spoil. Yes, the well, big yeah, we're twist. Gonna, we're gonna spoil but I honestly, movies. I don't know. I don't think it's it's not like up there again no. with like an M Night Shyamalan and kind of a wanna, twist. I do want to say. It's kind of. I thought it was. Obvious. I do want to emphasize. I've never had a ruin movie ruined for me by having it spoiled. I had Sixth Sense spoiled for me. I love that movie still when I saw it. Like, I've never. I cannot think of a single example where knowing what happens ruined the movie. Hmm. You know. So. Well, I, and then it like presupposes that if you watch the movie a second time, you're not yeah, going to enjoy it. Yeah, exactly. If it's a good movie, it's a good movie. If all it yeah. has is a twist ending, then it's a shitty movie to begin with. Um, but anyway. So, at the end, it sort of devolves more into the thriller sort of story of mm-hmm. of Joey confronting the mob boss and the family that's after him. Um, and the movie's like 92 minutes or something. It's really tight. But it's like, I really wanted more with the family, especially with the son sort of dealing with the idea that he killed a man, um, defending his father who he doesn't even know anymore. Like, that's a lot of that's a lot of shit to go through. And he just sort of doesn't get to you don't get to see any of that you do at the with the final scene but not through any dialogue well no that's well that's about something different that's about him accepting his father that that has nothing to do with him dealing with i think i I don't know know if that's i think that's someone that might just be the overall summation of no it is it's like acceptance i think it is a way i don't think it betrays what came before it i think 
the same sort of themes and arc that started the movie finishes the movie. I just felt like it would have been more interesting to see it play out in the family dynamic than to play out in a gunfight. Mm-hmm. Um, that's probably my main problem with the movie is that I would I would have no problem with the ending if there was like maybe an extra twenty minutes at the house of yeah sort of that tension. I mean. I mean, maybe it's not necessary, but it's that's sort of the that was the most interesting part of the movie to me, and it felt like there wasn't a lot of it. I don't know. I have I have an affinity for 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 unspokenness in a movie, like where it's just. Well, I I'm not saying end, like, I'm, not saying they like had to, I'm not saying they had to speak. I know, but feeling, it's but, it's almost like the ending of Big Night, you know, where it's just like. Well, but the reason the ending of Big Night works is because you see everything that came before it. Yeah, I'm not saying this ending doesn't work. I'm just saying, and I'm not even saying you know I'm not saying they have to. They have to go, well, Dad, I just killed someone. I don't even know who you are. And it's like, well, I thought I was someone different. And, like, they don't need to say what they're feeling. It's not, <laughs> yeah. That's something this movie avoids really well. Right. Um, but I just felt like a little more of the fallout. Um, well, maybe you can come up with it yourself. I can't. It's, it's <laughs> I was waiting for that. I mean, that, I mean, that's that's kind of like... There's there's a lot of movies that sort of ha- you know leave you on an ambig- ambiguous note. But, I, you know, I like the one, ambiguous note. I... Yeah. It's not it's not the ending I have a problem with. Right. It's the entire thrust of the last twenty minutes where instead of it being about his family, it's about him. Well, but, but it is about, about family him? in a sense. It's about his family history before his other family. I just didn't yeah. find that nearly as interesting though, as his actual I mean I again again, I guess that's the question it raises is which is his actual family? The actual like his actual brother or the family he started under a supposed identity mm-hmm. but the family that we see the most of <laughs> as opposed to the brother that shows up for 10 minutes um and is utterly engaging to watch but ultimately doesn't say a lot about his past yeah that would be like i mean i i have i do want to emphasize because I'm, i i realize i'm picking apart things i really love this movie um, no, that's what we're here for. That's, deconstruct. Yeah, yeah. Things. That's that's why I. That's why it it bothers me so much. That um, same with like broadcast news. Oh well, where it's like the news, ending of that really bothers the, I, you. I, I love the ending of History of Violence. I love the last scene. Right. The last scene of broadcast news is horrible, but the last scene of History of Violence is good. What are you talking? <laughs> you can't shake your I, head. No, it completely betrays everything that came before. It, I don't. Get, I don't want to. I don't. I don't get that. All right. Well, Save it for the James L. Brooks episode. Yeah. We don't want to talk about broadcast news now, but I don't know. It's it's also interesting with the title. I mean, you could look at it as a history of violence within Tom, obviously himself. But you know, I don't know if this this movie reaches, you know, this in terms of what it has to say about the role of violence in society. It's something like to say about the role of violence in America, and but, but it's it not, doesn't reach Unforgiven it's it's, heights. Well, it, but, it, well, this is a western. That's the yeah. other thing I sort of realized this time watching around. Like, oh shit, this is totally a western where he's this troubled gunfighter and he retires to a small town and then these, you know. And it's almost just like saying that you know violence is an integral part of our American culture oh, of, of our humanity. It's speaking like, of the way people, that's who, we we come to those extremes. When we want to defend our family. Speaking of the way people react to the violence, let's talk about the two sex scenes. I, I have a segue <laughs> into that. Yeah, please do. <laughs> no, uh, uh, well, I kind of think that the title, or 
more than the title, but the film treats history and violence like they're both very similar things in that mm-hmm. um, they don't become real until you're recounting and consciously reliving them. Um, which is, or I don't know which sex scene you were talking about, but that's first brought up in the the cheesy sex scene in the beginning where um, his wife is like, right. we never got to be teenagers yeah, together, yeah. so we're going to have this experience of being teenagers together, and she brings out the cheerleader costume. And then after that whole experience, they start like kind of like talking about their history and becoming a couple. I, can I say, I really love that sex scene. I really yeah. love it, too. It's really so realistic. Yes, yeah, and, very... because it is completely silly, but right. still... And you never see that with married couple. Like you always see, like sort of the sex scene at the beginning is safe, where marriage, where like married sex is like, oh boy, I'm sick of you, and I'm sick of you. You never see like married couples or anything like having fun like that. But it's also not like totally like I'm dressed up in a sexy no, cheerleader they're, they're, uniform. They break, yeah, they break character and stuff. Yeah, his belt hits the wall. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> um. Yeah, that that scene's so much. That scene's so great, <laughs> so cute. Because sex is silly. What also the, other, the funny thing about the sex scene? This was one of the first major releases that when I started working at Blockbuster, and like the same like sort of the conservative kind of uptight people who just thought it would be a thriller from the box, uh, like complained about the two sex scenes and said, "Yeah, two sex scenes and they're both perverted." <laughs> what? <laughs> like, and it was, and I love it how it's like there are these two sex scenes no. and the way they're presented in the movie are not judging either way. Like it's, it's, it's sort of examining where they're coming from, mm-hmm. but it's, um, there's the original sex scene, which is kind of them role playing and it's silly and it's fun and it's, it's, you know, kind of cheesy. Um, but it's not like going, Oh, their, their marriage is so boring. They have to role play or saying, Oh, this is, you know, it's, it's just sort of examining it and using that to talk about where they are right. with each other. And then the second scene where she's sort of, aroused by Joey by this by this new person in her life who is completely different from Tom um but she and like again it's not sort of saying it, when I first I, I I haven't seen this in a while and I, I couldn't remember if it was a rape scene or not because I remember it being sort of violent and on the stairs no it, it is not I, I rewatched it's not. it it's very er, yeah you just said that sorry yeah, yeah. <laughs> But I know again, it's not, ra- and it's not even sort of presented as rape. It's just presented as as sort of the same way that everyone is was congratulating about being a hero, you know, for killing these guys. Like she is, as much as she's trying to be, look, I'm understanding. You don't want to talk about it. She doesn't. She's trying to downplay it. She can't help the fact that she herself is being sort of uh, aroused by this sort of more aggressive, angry. Yeah. Uh, violent person, and again, but again, the scene very isn't shot. In that. The scene isn't shot in a way that's condemning her for that or anything like that. Like, mm-hmm. I mean, it's awkward because they're they were fighting and they're still fighting afterwards. But um, so uh, I, well, I, I always remembered that because the because the people would always complain about the two sex scenes when really there's nothing yeah. really weird or they're not weird, but there's nothing really wrong with either of them. The first sex scene has uh, it's mainly cunnilingus. Yes. Well, at least what we see. It's sixty nine. It yeah, it, it goes from telling us. Off with, with... Yeah, uh, and she goes. There wasn't much of that in high school. <laughs> and Sexy in here. Yeah, and um, and then it goes to him, but then it cuts to them embracing. So I'm sure they actually had sex, but that scene on the stairs or like or 
part of the theme I think that carries through through that scene or that resonates most through that scene is the idea that violence is something that actually comes out of a family or like part of what not just an undercurrent but part of what produces a family because sex is so violent and like the whole idea of like forging a family and <laughs> sorry I'm totally no, good no I, I mean I, my views of sexuality are kind of represented in both of these scenes like it's it could be silly and playful, or it could be really intense and <laughs> a little too uh, aggressive, which, you know, I'm not really put off by either way. <laughs> like, I th- that's what I was like. When I first saw this movie, I was like, whoa, this, I don't know how to feel about these scenes in particular, because I had s- almost, not like a, necessarily like a personal response, but just they sort of represented like my own you know perceptions of sexuality like they can go one way or the other obviously you can have a middle ground i'm just saying that like sometimes my own ideas of sexuality were a little you know (laughs) um probably because of watching so many movies and whatnot it's like i had a different take on oh well that's what it is i guess and then like both this movie sort of i don't know what i'm trying to say (laughs) but you know like this it made me feel uncomfortable in a good way is what i'm saying (laughs) also interesting that um, both this scene and the scene later on where he confronts his brother kind of play with interior and exterior space. Like, both of them are followed by a confrontation scene on the porch. And, like, really awkwardly when he meets his brother, he's, like, fumbling with his keys to get back inside. Mm -hmm. Like, he's trying to, like, get back inside the family space. But, um... It's kind of, yeah, sorry. Yeah. I, oh, I, I bring up these ideas and then I, I have some idea about where I'm going with them and then I like, I find myself waiting for someone else to fill in my thoughts. That happened to me a little while ago. <laughs> where I was like, I'm going somewhere. Where am I going? Someone Help t- me find my way. Someone take me. Can you lead me up the stairs? I do want to say, as much as I sort of wish it didn't, turn into the uh, the third act with so much focusing on the thriller aspect. This is, if you just want to watch this as a thriller, this is a really good thriller. Yeah, you don't have to psychoanalyze um, this movie. You know, I mean, just, 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 just watch it. There effective. might be like a little bit in the middle where you're like, why are they just looking at each other in the living room? Like, if you don't want to, like, if you're not trying to follow the characters and stuff, but like... Don't you see, Patrick? The living room represents right, the mind. No, no, but even if, even if you're just like sort of looking at this at the most base... Um, I feel it's sort of almost similar to No Country for Old Men in that way, where there's a lot of really complicated and interesting ideas, but it really works as a thriller. Um, the tension that builds from the the scene in the di- in the diner before um, the the two uh, robbers uh, get shot is mm-hmm. like Stephen McCaddy's really really intense and frightening, where he's just yeah. coffee. <laughs> it's, his eyes are bulging. It's yeah, it, that whole that's fucking insanely. And you, and it and you don't and it's and it's just uh, you don't know how what how they're going to get out of it and it's you don't know and that's sort of the first key again I like how it keeps it I mean you can tell what's going to happen um, but it doesn't it doesn't explicitly have a scene where Tom is going how am I going to keep this Joey from the rest of my family like it 
it keeps you in the dark as much as his family is, in that you are pretty much co- convinced that it, what yeah. they're saying is true. The characters aren't commenting on the themes of the movie, which really bugs me. <laughs> <laughs> I mean, I don't know. I think No Country has a little bit of that with Tommy Lee Jones, just a little bit, like the nature of evil kind of speeches. Uh, I, that's I mean, mostly at the end. But yeah, it is mostly the, at the like, end, and it's mostly through narration or whatever. And that's that's it. Does I'm not saying it takes I would away say from people. They, they do comment in the way that I'd say most of the dialogue in the first act is all foreshadowing. Yeah. Like, it's not it's not set up. It's like, it's not where people are just, like, looking into shadows and saying these complex psychological ideas. But if once you know what's going to happen, every mm-hmm. where it's like, oh, no, monsters don't come out. They're afraid of the light. Like, <laughs> <laughs> like there's a ton of, like, once you know what's going to happen, like, almost everything that his son says in the first act is right. all foreshadowing. Because the thing that really bugs me about Crash in particular is, like, a couple of the characters literally comment on, uh, like, I remember Elias Coteus at one point in that movie goes, the human body must meld itself yeah. with technology. There's definitely a lot of and speaking at the audience. Yeah, and I don't like Crash. that. It's and like it's talking like, down to me. why do you need to, to say that outright? Yeah. It's yeah. such an obvious well, theme. I, I think maybe because that movie's so boring otherwise. Like, that movie's so boring. The problem is it has... I never thought I'd say I have a problem with this, but there's too much fucking in Crash. I mean, I, like, I don't think there's a lot. There's enough character in that movie. Like, there's or nothing plot. to really. Yeah, there's no plot. There's no characterization. It's just like, oh, let's watch these people fuck in a car after getting. Cra- I mean, I don't know. There's just nothing to hold yeah. on to. There's Crash, nothing. I haven't seen the all book. Cronenberg's actually, movies. does. I haven't seen all Cronenberg's movies, but Crash is definitely my least favorite. Yeah, for sure. And we made we've made that Crash joke a lot. Company's pretty. Yeah, well, Fast Company's was his like attempt at just making a straightforward. Is that a Chris Rock, Anthony Hopkins movie? Race, racing movie. That's Bad Company. Oh, no, that's yeah. a band. No, who released Bad Company. Oh no, they did the soundtrack to Fast Company. Oh, that's okay. Rush Hour. Okay. That's Rush Hour. <laughs> <laughs> the band Rush did the soundtrack for Rush Hour. That's true. Um, Let's go through the rest of David Cronenberg's Cron- David Crohn's disease. <laughs> <laughs> David Cronenberg's Chronophilomagical Shivers, which we mentioned. I have not seen. Have you seen it? It gave me the shivers. No, have you seen it? Um, Yes, I have. A long time ago on VHS. uh, Originally called. Or it might have been Beta. If you want to find it on IMDb, it's called. Originally, the title is They Came From Within. Yeah, I think I watched this movie by sticking the beta inside my stomach mm-hmm. and I watched it through my mind yeah and then How'd I went crazy go? and I started to I made this gun yeah. out of human flesh and we're not started, there yet oh sorry yeah <laughs> that's good though. then you became a beta fish because <laughs> <laughs> you like fish so much and I had oh, to go so find uh, we're combining I hate, I hate that movie returns to a beta fish and I had to go find Nemo <laughs> yeah, in um, the city That'd be great if they were beta fish, and it was just like everyone Albert Brooks came across in that movie and just started beating the shit out of them. With their fins? Yeah, or with their... I don't know how beta fins fight. Beta fish fight, but they do. I think they bite each other. There you go. He'd That'd be cool. Them. I, had a, I had a pair of blind cave tetras. They're, they're fish that they live in caves, and they don't have, there's no light down there, so when they're young, they pop out their eyes. Mm. So they would constantly... Awesome. Yeah, so they constantly bump into the walls and stuff. And we'd always forget to feed the fish. And those were the two fish that, I guess they were ganged up, and they ate every other fish. Oh my god. <laughs> like, every once in a while we'd forget to feed the fish, and there'd just be another, a new skeleton. 
They lived for oh, like... Oh, they, they seriously ate the meat yeah, off... Yeah. Holy shit. Yeah, there was... There was a... Uh, yeah. There, they lived for like three years off of our other fish. Whoa. <laughs> they even ate the algae eater. Anyway, Eat your yeah. fish, dude. The next one is called Rabid, a.k.a. Rage. Um, I saw that once. Thought it was okay. I, I caught part of it at the end of Music Box. The yeah. music... Uh, all the Cronenberg prints the, that they played the music The problem box is ca- he casted a porn star, Marilyn Chambers, I yeah. believe. Horrible actress. <laughs> I mean, she, she doesn't really bring much to the movie. What's sort of interesting about Rabbit is it's a zombie movie, and right. I think, and a lot of people, you know, they have they debate the fast versus slow zombie movie. Mm-hmm. But this came out in '77, which she was a rabid zombie. You know, and all the zombies in this movie were running. Right, and '77. That's not. I don't think that's. I that might be the same year as Dawn of the Dead, or mm-hmm. like so. The slow moving zombies and the fast moving zombies were pretty cl- close together. Yeah. Um, Ivan Reitman gave Cronenberg the idea for this movie and wanted to cast Sissy Spacek, which would have probably been a lot better. Yeah, but what's sort of interesting about this movie is the way it shows the zombie outbreak is by going from character to character and how, and it really shows, like, first how subtly the thing, where it's just one person and then they bite a random character that you don't know yet, and then it shows that character as they're trying to, and then then the cast characters who have been infected keep expanding. And you get sort of a sense of the country and how it's being overrun. Um, and I've never seen that done in a zombie movie before. You, it always has either already happened or it happens off screen. Mm-hmm. So um, I think that was that's sort of it what makes it like, unique. It seems like another AIDS kind of allegory. Again, this is 77. Right. When, 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 did, when was AIDS discovered? I don't know, but I've always heard Shivers described that way. Um, from other films. Well, I mean, there were other STDs before but, AIDS. Well, yeah, I, I, I realize that. I, I mean, or maybe it's just like in retrospect thinking it, you know, Lyme it was ahead of, ahead of its time. AIDS was first reported disease. in 1981, according to Wikipedia. Well, June 5th, 1981. Maybe Cronenberg had a premonition? Yes. Saw AIDS coming. That's probably it. Did you know that all of his movies are, he's actually Nostradamus? Yeah, existence probably will happen at some point for sure. Well, he kind of predicted the internet with Videodrome. Yeah. yeah. Okay. So after Rabid was Fast Company, which I don't think no. I think Russ saw it. He said it was bad. Mm-hmm. Yeah, I think everyone. We I've both heard... watched that. Russ wanted to watch it a lot longer than I did. <laughs> I, I wanted to turn it off after well, like know, the first five minutes. I know David Cronenberg's an avid motorcycle rider, and he loves. He loves machines and making, you know, he loves engines and motorcycles and Good stuff. Good for so. him. Yeah. yeah. So that that right, was probably right. just a different pet interest of his that happened to not we'll be. We'll forgive you this time, David. Uh, his next movie was The Brood, which I love. Um, you talked a little bit about that. Yeah. Excellent film. And the one thing I'd say about all of his early movies is because there were low budget Canadian productions, like the act, like the movies are almost always better than the acting in them. Um, I think the Brood and the next right. movie Scanners are yeah. really good examples of that. Where although concepts... what's his name? No, Michael Ironside's pretty good in Scanners. Michael Ironside's all right in Scanners, but he's not even in Scanners all that much. I know, but the his main head character explodes. of Scanners is boring. That's pretty cool. Okay, but I'm just saying that's that's not about acting. The psychiatrist is really interesting. Oh, in mm-hmm. the Brood, that scene in the very yeah. beginning of the Brood where he's talking to one of his patients it's before. Reed. Yeah. Yeah. Well, before I realized it was uh, like his kind of therapy, I thought it was like the beginning of a Harold Pinter play. That's what like, I thought too. I thought they no, were watching just, a play. I, I thought, That's well, they're point. on a stage. It yeah. seems like a play. 
and you see sort of the initial bumps yeah. on him. Other note is I saw the brood. I would like to ask you a question. I saw the brood at the music box. Uh, at yeah. one of the music horrible box massacres. print. Well, yeah, horrible print and really badly projected. I don't know who cropped Fuck. it, but it was. But like there were scenes where you were literally seeing just three feet above every character. It was head. just as bad as that cover art I tried to make of our faces on the brood poster. Do you remember yeah. that? I didn't. <laughs> But, that was um, a horrible idea. People were. La- I, I was like really looking forward to it because I wanted to see how it worked with the audience. People were laughing throughout. Like, do you think it's a campy movie? Uh, no, but they were laughing at May too. What what parts are they laughing campier. at? Just like whenever the little children in the park is came out. The the little children are kind of funny. Like, I just think anything with babies and children is hilarious. <laughs> I just think it's so funny how small and stupid they are. <laughs> Okay. But I could go on about that. No, no, orangutans. Yeah, I don't know if you'd say that about baby geniuses. Oh no, oh, yeah, that's, that, that's, that's definitely the infamous. There, there where, are comedic moments. No, no, the end is the end where she's where she's throwing open her. Yeah, road. that's definitely mm-hmm. campy. But yeah, for the most part, I thought that those scenes with the kids are disturbing, especially when they kill the teacher in front of her students. Yeah, uh, yeah. like that shit fucked me up. Um, Scanners is next. I think that movie's really boring. I think it, it is. Has... It is. Patrick McGoohan's in it. Yeah, no, Patrick McGoohan's in it. He's good. I don't know who that is. Prisoner. Prisoner. No. Have you ever seen The Prisoner? Uh, I watched the first episode. I didn't know what the fuck was happening, so... Well, yeah, you never really know what the okay. fuck is happening, and you just kind of I mean, have to be yeah, okay I, with I, it. I mean, I thought that way about Twin Peaks, but I really loved everything else about Twin Peaks. With Prisoner, I didn't really like anything else about it, so... There were a few episodes of The Prisoner where I was just... I felt totally shortchanged, but... Ever see that scene in Scanners when that dude's head blew up? Yeah. Yeah. Sorry. Again, loving <laughs> loving slow motion of the head exploding. Um, yeah. Not necessarily... Not, it's, it's, it's sort of become the ultimate gore shot, or at least the, the most used gif. <laughs> I was about to say. <laughs> that yeah, shit's blowing up on yeah. Tumblr. Yeah, and literally. It, and yeah. it inspired the band Skinny Puppy to use that... Use a sample from that movie in the song "Fascist Fascist Jock Itch." Hmm. Just thought I'd throw that in there. Good old skinny puppy. Good old skinny puppy. Yeah, um, I like fat puppies. I think they're really. Cute. <laughs> I like fat beagles the best. Fat kitten. Um, I don't care about their fatness or thinness so much as their furriness. Yeah, yeah, I would agree with that. I like. I, I, I don't know. I like fat beagles. Um, yeah, I think Scanners <laughs> is really boring. It is. I. It's, it has it, moments. I think there's like three of them, and I think there was it spun off into this other directed video series called Scanner Cop, where it's a cop with scanner powers. Oh and wow! I, had, I know that because I, I get owned, that mixed up with transfers. I owned yeah 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 I do too. I I owned uh, Scanner Cop too, <laughs> which, huh. which was horrible. You should watch that in July. Uh, Videodrome, which is excellent. Yeah, fantastic obviously. movie. Um. That's another really complex movie that I don't think I really understand at all. Mm, uh, like, I've watched it about three times, and I'm pretty sure I don't know what the fuck's going on for most of it. Yeah. Like, even just on a strictly plot level, I don't think I understand what's going on in that movie. It's great. It, I really it, enjoy watching it. Yeah. But. Enjoy watching the I felt the that way as well. when I first watched it, like, five years ago, and then I recently rewatched it, and I. It's, it's one of those movies where I'm like, okay, I, I'm assuming he's just having these insane hallucinations. Are they really, all these things really happening? 
You know, it's like well, I, mean, I just lost like my I feeling of whether or not that matters. I don't know. Right. I don't know if I cared so much. I, yeah, and but and the, I was really interested in where of, it was I mean, going. Part of the, yeah, part of the joy of watching it is it raises all these interesting ideas and questions. But as far as when I say I don't understand it, I mean like the logis- I cannot think the, of a single cohesive theory that the sort logistics of ties of the it. movie together. <laughs> well, and the, all the logistics, but also like I can't think of if I had to, if someone asked me what is Videodrome saying, I'd go. I could give you about a half dozen things, <laughs> like, and I don't know if any of them are the main thrust of the movie. It's just saying that Beta is gonna go down the toilet. It's gonna melt away. Well, Beta tapes are going there's away. There's actually a Marshall McLuhan. Yeah, quote, Marshall or, McLuhan, right? Yeah, or I wanted to read it. I felt oh, that's like, okay. No, or, yeah, yeah. Please or, do. I have to find good, it. It's a good quote. On, or I don't know if it's the same thing you're thinking of. Go ahead. Go ahead. No, you go first. <laughs> oh, is is it? You know nothing of my work at all. How you got to be a professor? <laughs> <of anything>? <laughs> <laughs> oh, I knew it was dumb. God, because that's that a good was one. so good. Way to be on your toes, Patrick. Very good. Very good. Uh, the next medium, whatever it is, it may be the extension of consciousness, will include television as its content, not as its environment, and it will transform television into an art form. Or the medium is the message. Yeah, basically. Right. Yeah, I don't know what that means either. Okay. <laughs> well, I think th- I think Cronenberg is, you know, philosophizing, whatever that word. Right. You know, he's, I don't know if he has a cohesive message per se in this movie, but it's... It's it's something you can sort of analyze in film analysis classes if you like. If he didn't have a cohesive message, I, I don't know. Me, me saying that I don't get it is a statement about uh, like how it's working on well, a level that I can't comprehend. I'm just saying that the movie itself doesn't lend itself to a cohesive message. I don't think the movie itself. He probably knows what he's saying. I don't know if the movie itself lends itself to a cohesive message. You know, it's really cohesive. Hmm. The Dead Zone. Yeah, perfect. Perfect adaptation. Mm-hmm. That's. That, and that's uh, that's one of the early adaptations of Stephen King where they really made use of the New England setting. Yeah, Christopher Walken, one of his best performances, and like just for his the eyes. ice is going to break. Right, that is just one of the best line oh, deliveries ever. Sleeping? <laughs> no, she's not home yet. Um, no, he uh, he's his eyes just alone. Like, oh, you have been you have been dead. You have been gone there and back again. Just just the way his eyes are, like just making perfect casting and. Every time I watch it, I always forget. I always think of it as like a thriller, but it's much yeah. more of a character piece that just sort of happens to climax in a brief thriller. It's my first introduction to Tom Skerritt's sexy mustache. I don't know who Tom Perfect. Skerritt is. He was in Contact and Poltergeist 3, uh, Top oh, Gun. Oh, 3. Top Gun. Okay, maybe... You gotta watch Poltergeist 3 for July, dude. I, I'm just telling it's you... It's fucking horrible, but I it's great. Not, I may know who Tom Skerritt is, but I do not... You gotta know Tom Skerritt, especially his mustache. Names. I'm very bad with names. His mustache is amazing. Next movie's The Fly, which is a, which is a lot of fun, because it has more of like an operatic kind of poppy tone. Yeah. That Again, movie just fires on all cylinders, too. It yeah. just starts. Yeah. And it's like, here's Jeff Goldblum, and he's... It starts, and it just it, ends. Yes. That's what I love about David Cronenberg's movies. They just end. Yeah. Um, there's not a lot of denouement. Um, once Denouement. Been... Denouement. 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 Do you like pronounce that. it that way on purpose? <laughs> no, I don't pronounce it that way on purpose. It's because I don't have these conversations in real life, but I read them. So, mm. like, for the longest time, I thought no, genre I, I thought genre was pronounced genere. I, I <laughs> pronounced the word mausoleum, mausoleum. Mausoleum? Mm. No, it's, 
I'm not trying to be clever. I'm just I'm just really not clever. I, <laughs> I'm really no, dumb. I, I like saying denouement. Yeah, that's denouement. Sorry, I just, I, just flash, I flash back to my cinema studies class in Purdue when I said denouement, and she was like, "It's denouement." <laughs> was, your, was, was your cinema studies class taught by by Adrian Brody playing Salvador Dali? Oh, denouement! Parallel entity. Now, no, now it's Scooby Doo. <laughs> 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 I was gonna say Yoda. Yeah. Um, all right. So the fly's great. Dead Ringers talked about naked lunch. My favorite. Is um, that your favorite Cronenberg movie? Yeah, definitely. Interesting. Because there's lots of naked people. I like the bugs fucking That's... as typewriters. <laughs> That's my end. The last time, of I, naked the last time lunch. I saw it, the last time I saw it on the uh, on, when we saw it on the big screen as part mm-hmm. of the, the sci-fi uh, spectacular, it was. I like. I sort of realized how many levels it's working on simultaneously. Yeah, and it like not just not just similar levels. Like a lot of his movies where they're addressing different things that are all connected. Like his, it works on tons of different levels, and it's and it and it has that sort of perfect dream quality where at any moment in the movie you know exactly what the scene before it was, but right. the scene before that you have no idea. Like you don't like you know how they got to this moment, but you don't know how they got to the moment before that. Um, yeah, no, that's that's where every point. segment on its own sort of makes sense. But when you try to like explain the plot of the movie as a whole, you'll never remember it. Yeah, um, it takes you know kind of an unfilmable book and turns it on its ear. And well, yeah, because it, it takes because it, it's an adaptation of the book and it's an autobiography and it's yeah. a, his other short stories. It's like yeah, it's a nice integration of different mm-hmm. uh, ways to tell a story. And Peter Weller's pretty fucking great. And, and even before you even understand that, like the first like three times I saw it, I didn't really get any of that. It's just crazy as hell, and that's a lot of fun to yeah. watch. Yeah, a lot of phallic, fleshy things a lot of flopping phallic, around. A lot of phalluses, a lot of vaginas. Yeah. Uh, Typewriter bugs. A lot of bugs. A lot of really weird props. Yeah. Um, bug spray is heroin. <laughs> bug powder. Bug powder. Yeah, yeah. I should say. Shit's yeah. great. Shit's so good. And all the performances are great. Right. Um, God, that movie's great. Okay, so then M. Butterfly, yeah. which I have not seen. Yeah, I, I, I liked it. I think, Russ, you liked it a lot more. But, um, yeah. I like I, it a lot. Yeah, I'm probably going to rewatch it. I've only seen it once. I don't even know what the... Jeremy it's, Irons it's an is opera? Um, well, originally it was an opera, but it's actually a play, or not even... I. It would be false to even say it's about the opera. It's mm-hmm. about... A, character who is a performer in the Beijing opera. Okay. There's a whole lot of other stuff. But okay. Sort of like making lunch where it's not a direct adaptation. Yeah. Mm-hmm. No, it's it's not an adaptation. It's oh, okay. about or um oh, the, right. the character so... in the Beijing opera performs as Madame Butterfly and Jeremy Irons character sees her in that role and like kind of like oh, falls okay. in love with this idea of her he has based on that role but like the the or it was originally a very good play but the the play slash movie itself goes way beyond hmm. that cool and then uh crash which we talked about yeah Existence, that one leaves me cold uh which i haven't been able to i i I remember that being all over the place, and like in used DVD places at like disc replay, couldn't find it. So, so I, I love disc. it. I do. I do own the novelization because Russ <laughs> I, gave me the novelization. Nice. 
you can't... find that again? Uh, bookstore in Bloomington, Indiana. <laughs> yeah. Oh, nice. okay. No, it's, I, I really like that movie a lot. I think it's fun. It came out the same around the same time as The Matrix and sort of explores the idea of, is this reality? Is this the real life? Is so this it, just it, fantasy? Is it, a, is it an adaptation? <laughs> oh, I was going to say, it sounds like an adaptation of Once in a Lifetime. And it's more of like, you know, how video games are, you know, becoming almost too interactive. Which in 1999 wasn't really the case. Jude no. Law and Jennifer Jason Lee. Oh, Jennifer Jason Lee is I guess there was gorgeous EverQuest in, this in 1999, movie. but like, for Actually, the most part, she looks kind of slutty. That's right. <laughs> I don't mind that. It's all right. It's a good thing. Uh, yeah. Next, next yeah. I, I didn't get to finish, um, but I watched like the first hour or so of Spider. Yeah. Where Ray Fiennes is really great. Yeah, it's tough. This Wait, might be my so f- you didn't get to finish it, or you didn't want to finish it? No, I didn't get to. I had to go to work. Okay. Yeah, that's a movie that's kind of tough to talk about, the ending. Um, I'm not clear on it. I'm not 100% clear. Which, And I also talk, I'd rather talk about it after everybody Spoiler alert, he climbs up the spout again. Ah! <laughs> <laughs> Here's the fly. <laughs> <laughs> His name is Charlotte. That's why he made both the spider and the... And I... <laughs> <laughs> I like how you could hear your brain running out of gas. It happens to me every ten minutes. The old lady died. <laughs> <laughs> that's, that's the ending of the horse. Um... So then, yeah. history of violence. We already talked about in Eastern Promises. Yeah, it's, that's that's a great, was great, a lot great better movie. than I thought it would be. Um, yeah, and a lot more Cronenbergian than I thought it would be. A lot of focusing on like the flesh and the tattoos and history and duality. Mm-hmm. Babies. Yes. I would say that a lot the, of babies. The bathhouse fight is probably one of my favorite things in any Cronenberg movie I've ever seen. Carly was so happy that she got to see Viggo Mortensen's balls and balls <laughs> and penis like again and again and again. Oh. You don't remember that? Well, of course I That's do. That's like all I remember. <laughs> you really get to see his like, dick because like I, in, you yes. see his balls no, kind of. You, you see, you, you definitely do? see his dick. Oh, like, I didn't notice. Mind, if I think about that bathhouse fight, it's a dick and balls fighting these two would-be assassins. Um, no, that's, <laughs> no, that's a great, it's a great fight scene beyond that. It's where it's, it's like. Fucking it's fucking visceral. Yes, yeah, where it's really intense and you really. Like, it's not really slick. No. It's not like, oh, he's the badass, and look, he took out these two would-be assassins. It's like, there's oh, no score. Gonna, oh, shit. Oh, oh. Like, yeah. every moment you think he's going to die. It's he looks exhausted no by the yeah. end of the yeah. fight. Mm-hmm. I lo- like, that That had so much... I, I mean, I understand, like, if you're an actor, like, when you're doing an act fight scene or some kind of action scene, you have to worry about places and, yeah. all, and all these... And the choreography and everything. But, like, it adds so much when you are really reacting as well. Mm-hmm. Uh, sort of the key example I'd give of that it would be like like the ch- car chase scenes in Ronin, which I think we we've talked about before. How like De Niro looks sp- like scared out of his fucking mind whenever he's doing it. Like like you like when the car slams on the brake, you it's sort of like a medium shot, but you see him through the windshield, and he's like like fucking screaming, and it just adds so much. So yeah, and that and I think and I think the uh, history of violence uh, along with Eastern Promises, I feel like. They're sort of more focusing on the human aspect and sort of the feelings, not just the ideas. Yeah, um, and hopefully that that will continue on with Dangerous Method. And his next movie after that is an adaptation of a Don DeLillo book, which I rather like, called Cosmopolis. Mm-hmm. 
So he's got two movies in the works, one this With, year and starring, one next year. Starring the tw- twin geniuses Robert uh, Pattinson and Jay Bershanel. Bur- I know, from, that, uh, that kind of worries she's me. She's Out of Your League and Twilight Eclipse. That worries me a little bit, the, yeah. the Robert Pattinson choice there. We'll see how that one turns out, but I can't, I can't tell you how excited I am about Dangerous I mean, you know Method. What? You know what? I'm always, I'm, always, I'm always up for being pleasantly surprised by actors. Yeah, sure. Uh, you know, I don't think he's been in any movie. I'm sure you'll watch Water for Elephants bad. soon. What's that? I'm sure you'll watch Water for Elephants real soon to watch no. Robert Pattinson. No, I don't I think don't. I will. You want to watch him stroke a little elephant trunk? Oh, is that what the movie's about? Yeah. I'm there. And he just feeds water. Oh, know. it's a gay movie. <laughs> 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 That's it. Are you saying that the elephant was male and that Robert Pattinson is an elephant? Because <laughs> that's what it would have to be to be gay. And the water is Robert Pattinson, secret elephant. Can we start a rumor right now? I heard that dude's really an elephant. He's the elephant in the living room. You can tell. Never forget. (laughs) Never forget the day. Where were you when you learned that Robert Pattinson was an elephant? What are you talking about? Oh, one last little tidbit. David Cronenberg's middle name is Paul, apparently. And he was given an honorary award in philosophy of some kind, an honorary patron award. So mm-hmm. that doesn't surprise huh. me at all. That's really nice. I'm happy for that guy. Yeah. You know what? I, I I wonder. I wonder if like weirdos like approach David Cronenberg on the street and like just start telling them intimate details about their lives. Start pulling open their shirts and showing him tumors. <laughs> <laughs> You understand. <laughs> I had to come to you. <laughs> I had no other choice. Also, he, he's just... a bit of an actor. He was in, uh, what's that Clyde Barker movie he was in? Um, Nightbreed. Nightbreed. He was in The Fly, too. He played the doctor yeah. that the do- abortion. Whoa! <laughs> yeah. Overreaction when he sees the uh, larva. Mm-hmm. Uh, he, he's also in Jason X. As like this smarmy doctor, who who's like Jason Voorhees, you'll never escape, and like immediately Jason escapes so he could kill kill David Cronenberg. <laughs> wow, he almost did Total Recall. He spent a year on Total Recall. Yeah, yeah. Now I would like to have seen that version, but I do love Paul Verhoeven. Mm-hmm. Still, that's that that would have been exciting. Would have been good. Wow, so, he almost yeah. did Basic Instinct too. Apparently, every Verhoeven oh. movie could have been a. Cronenberg movie, man, yeah. that's sweet. You know he got Basic offered. You know he got offered. Would have been a lot more interesting. Wow. You do know he, he a lot got, of aborted fetuses. He got, and he got offered Return of the Jedi. <laughs> Did you know that? No. Him and David Lynch both got offered wow. and turned down Return of the Jedi. They should have made wow. it together. Can you imagine the Sarlacc pit? Can you imagine <laughs> the Sarlacc pit. <laughs> Just one big vagina. Yeah, or da- or David Lynch's Return. Of the- oh, what could have been? I could have been. Can you imagine David Lynch making Ewoks? Yeah. I can imagine Cronenberg doing Jabba the Hutt. Yeah, exactly. (laughs) Yeah, totally. Cronenberg's Ewoks would look like those little kids from the brood. (laughs) 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 Hair on them. (laughs) Wearing parkas. And like at one point Han, like one point Han kneels by him, you know, one one that's dying is like. I'm sorry. And then he's like, 
he has no genitals or <laughs> and he has no and he, he has no belly buttons with no navel and at one point someone has to come up to them like hey little guy and they're like <laughs> <laughs> somebody's gotta do some mashups i think some youtube yeah. mashups what sure, if one of our work. listeners can do Photoshop? Can you Photoshop the brood, the kids from the brood? As uh, Ewoks? Oh, just kind of start Photoshopping those kids as a bunch of things. Yeah, yeah. Just, <laughs> just Photoshopping those kids as, like, Egypt protesters. <laughs> like, <laughs> just everything. Photoshop them inside of Sesame Street, you know. We'll turn this into the next Polydeen riding things. We'll have to make a Tumblr for it. Yeah, yeah. Oh, boy. F- fuck yeah, parka kids. <laughs> All right. Um, I believe that's it. Yeah. Yeah, our, our next episode uh, will be on... Uh, Tim Burton. Tim Burton. That's your favorite? No, five favorite Cronenberg. Oh, oh yeah. No, no three. 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 We do top, three. What's the top three? That's you right. go first, Patrick. Okay. My number one is Naked Lunch. Um, number two is probably uh, Dead Ringers and then The Fly. Um, my number one is The Brood, my number two is Dead Ringers, and my number three is Spider. Hmm, I'm gonna go with Dead Ringers as number one. Um, upon a rewatch, I'm, 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 I'm gonna put Spider at number two, and number three would be The Fly. Mm-hmm. All right. Um, thank you very much for being on, Megan. Yeah, it was great having you on. Very fun. Lots of fun. It was great being here. <laughs> <laughs> yeah. It was great being here. <laughs> it was great being here. Yeah, we'll Thank take you. you. We'll use one of those takes. <laughs> <laughs> um, all right. Um, so until next time, please visit directorsclubpodcast oh, yeah. dot com. Yeah, email us at. Uh, you can check out our schedule there. We actually have updated it, and there's. We got a couple of uh, directors in mind all the way up until November. Mm-hmm. So uh, stay tuned. We got some great guests coming up. And next episode, we will be talking about Tim Burton. Yeah. So that'll be fun. Um, yeah, with Stephen Ray Morris. He'll be joining us for that episode. Yeah. And I think that's about it, correct? Mm-hmm. Any, yeah. th- any other final thoughts? Any final words? Oh, July shittacular. Stay, t- stay tuned to our blog. I'll be updating right. every shitty movie I see in July. Um, until oh, I quit in about a week because I'll just be so upset by watching all these bad movies. Don't be surprised <laughs> if, uh, like, the next couple of podcast episodes, I'm just raving about the directors because it will be the only good movies that I had seen. Oh, um, that'll be month. fun. Yeah. And uh, I did change my Twitter name in per your request. Cause <laughs> what is it now? It's Instant Jim. Instant Jim. That's not bad. Yeah, well, it's all I could think of because yeah. most of the... Jim Stint? Most... <laughs> That would have been good too. Um, no, that's it's instant Jim. So find me there now, because Jimmy Jim, Jamie Jim, Jim Jim, and James L was too long. Yeah, and yeah. So at instant Jim, mine's just at Patrick Rapol. And then our collective podcast uh, uh, Twitter is DC Podcast. Yeah. So, I don't think uh, that gets updated yeah. very much. Yeah, and send, shoot us an email at directorsclubpodcast at gmail dot com. Yeah. And we'll see you in a couple weeks. Looking forward to it. Thanks a lot for tuning in. Thank you. All right. See you later. It's Dave Ball. Was was your cinema studies class taught by by Adrian Brody playing Salvador Dali? (laughs) (laughs) Oh, Dave (laughs) Ball.
Actually, he's on Parallel entity. Now, now it's Scooby Doo. 